welcome to the very first episode uh, or podcast of the Silmarillion Film Project of 2018. That's right. I am your co-host, Dave Kale, uh, and that is my son, Wallace Kale. In the background, you can probably hear making noises and kicking and looking at me and trying to talk to me. <laughs> but I'm also joined, in addition to Wallace, joined by Corey Olson, the Tolkien professor. Uh, and uh, Happy New Year to you, Corey. Happy New Year to you. And uh, and I'm excited. We're we're back to the Noldor this episode, right? That's right. Yeah, burning the ships today is a big uh, big day. Today is the 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 one that we had pegged as sort of the big turning point uh, of the yeah. season. This is when uh, when things start to get actually tragic. I mean, not that the Kinslaying wasn't tragic at the beginning of the season, but um, you know we had so you know we had the the first two episodes. Which, where things were bad, right? You know, the Oath of Fanor is bad and the Kinslaying is bad. But those are bad in the sense of, like, we're setting off on this really bad trajectory, right? That was the, that yep. was the, that was the making of the really bad decision. Today is the time when we get to that, that real point of no return, when, when Fanor goes completely off the edge. I have always thought that the Kinslaying, was, or even more than the Kinslaying, um, the burning of the ships is really the moment when... Uh, when Feanor really kind of seals things for himself, because the Kinslaying... Go ahead. I was going to say, the Kinslaying, you can kind of understand as sort of things got out of control. Right, right, and yeah. I mean, it's... it's it, Again, I'm not trying to take anything away from the Kinslaying and how bad that was, but, the I mean, the other thing that I would say about it is the, the Doom of Mandos, you know? I mean, like, that... Finarfin turns back, right? And is forgiven. And to me, I think that the there is this sense that that's like the last chance to repent, right? Um, they could have, turned, you know, had everybody, including Feanor, turned back and, uh, you know, gone back and sought forgiveness. I think they could have gotten it, you know? Um but the choice to not only go on, but then to actually begin to enact the betrayals that were foretold in the Doom of Mandos, you know, it's, um, it's, it's, he's done. He's done at that point. So yeah. this is, this is a, a, a really big deal. There's, a, there's an intentionality to, uh, to the burning of the ships that, that, uh, you know, yes. he's like, like I said, the, 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 the Kinslaying kind of seems like, you know, could be at least can be understood as like, oh, they didn't mean for things to get that bad. There was a misunderstanding. Misunderstandings, escalations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mistakes the were made. Of the ships is just like, yeah, all right. Like, <laughs> we're not sending the ships. He's also doing it to his own, his own even closer kin. Yes, who have done nothing against him other than follow him. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it all, yeah. It also seems slightly more. Um, uh, it, it, it seems like more of a jerk move, too. Like, I, it's it's hard to understand why why are they burning those ships? Like, why can't you send those ships back? It just just seems like just sort of mustache twirly evil uh, or or jerk jerky. So so yeah, I think I think that's really where like things turn. Yeah, and it's it's really of course that's our one of our biggest challenges here today is to like how do we explain Feanor's choice? to burn the ships how do we depict that choice without just making him look like an utter lunatic who's just acting arbitrarily you know because it right. 
from a rational standpoint, it seems to make no sense at all. Um, uh, so, you know, it's our job today to try to make it make sense, but also to, to, to make sure that we're capturing its position. Cause right after this, things start to go downhill, right? Uh, we're, the next episode, episode nine is battles, right? And so we're going to get to the, we're going to get the, the slaughter of the green elves next time. We're going to get the, uh, the apparent, at least short term victory, um, of Feanor, uh, and, uh, the Noldor against the orcs and, and, uh, uh, uh and, What's I almost said bulldog, but he's down in the south, um, Gothmog, up in the north. Um, so it's, you know it's, it's going to be battles, death of Denethor, then the death of Feanor, and you know it's going to it's going to think and you know and then we're going to get the girdle of Melian. So th- think think things are getting bad after this, right? Things things get real. I mean they've already been real, but this is uh, this is this is a big deal. So anyway, yeah, it's a big episode today. I'm looking forward to, uh, to ironing out some of this stuff. As I said, I, I've, I've always found the burning of the ships, one of the most sort of compelling and, uh, um, just crucial moments, uh, in the whole career, certainly of Fanor, but really of the, you know, of the sort of the history of the Noldor. So, uh, I'm really looking forward to, uh, uh, thinking it through and, uh, seeing what we can do when we're actually trying to, uh, trying to envision it here. Um, so that is our, Sadly, go ahead. The, the, the bad news about today is by Trish. Yes. Yes. Unfortunately, Trish couldn't make it here today. Uh, so yes, we, we are, we are, we are Trishless here today. Um, but, um, yeah, that is, that is, that is the sad thing. Um, Quick announcements as we uh, as we uh, attempt, nevertheless, to move forward. Um, hang on, I've got my announcements page. Here we go. Okay, two main announcements. Uh, Mythmoot early bird registration. This is an, this is a very uh, urgent announcement. So the early bird registration ends this Sunday, Sunday, January seventh. So if you're if you've uh, if you've decided to come to Mythmoot this year, uh, you might want to act on that sooner rather than later. Uh, our ticket prices will go up a little bit after the 7th of January. So I encourage you to uh, uh, look into that. We've got a, a bunch of registrations already. Um, it's looking like a great time. We have uh, we have John Garth and Douglas Anderson both coming this year, as well as Mark Ockren, the inventor of the Klingon language. So it's going to be uh, it's going to be a great time uh, this year. Um, also, the Mythmoot call for papers is up. So, if you want to, uh, uh, if you want to give a paper, if you want to propose, you know, another kind of session, we're pretty flexible with different things that happen there. Um, you can totally uh, do that. We have the call for papers on the web page. Uh, so, again, just go to signumuniversity.org and then click on the Mythmoot uh, 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 image icon down there. Uh, I. I a little bit down the page and it will get you to the myth moot page and the call for papers, uh, is linked on a button in the middle of that page. So, um, so that's myth moot. Don't forget myth moot June 21st to 24th of 2018. Uh, and then, uh, spring courses, our second announcement, our spring courses start soon. Uh, and, uh, we've got some great, uh, some great courses this year. Uh, we're, uh, rerunning my Tolkien's poetry course, which, uh, I taught, uh, for the first time back in 2014, I think it was summer of 2014. Um, 
uh, so that was such a that class was so much fun. Really, uh, uh, really excited to see that course going again. Um, anyway, so cool. All right, uh, those are our, those are our quick announcements. Now, a uh, couple housekeeping items. So the message board was discussing the question that we put uh, a couple weeks back about uh, the Amazon project and, the, and uh, what we do with the Amazon project. They want to continue with season four of Film Film. Um, I, we're gonna, we'll reevaluate that. We'll, we'll see what happens when we get to, you know, we're not going to do anything before the end of season three. We're obviously going to continue and finish season three. So we have several more months uh of uh, what we're currently doing <clears throat> before we make that final decision, um, but uh, but yeah, so we'll see we'll see kind of where we are and what news has come out by the time we get to that point. Uh, so uh, so yeah, we'll see. I don't know. Uh, Go ahead. Be forewarned. I'm saying be forewarned. Um, your 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 uh, fearless podcast hosts are more inclined toward um, jumping. But the, the warning was that the uh, that you and I are more inclined toward jumping on the bandwagon, uh, Amazon show bandwagon. Yeah, it's kind of hard for me to imagine just sort of carrying on like we've been carrying on and, and sort of more or less pretending that, like, what is probably going to be the biggest, you know, Tolkien news of the decade doesn't, like, isn't happening. Like, that's going to be hard to do, I think. Um, so, uh, yeah. I mean, it's hard. I mean, goodness knows I love what we're doing and I would love to continue. And, and anybody who knows me even a little bit knows how uh, how much I dislike in anything jumping ahead and skipping to a later thing. Um, I can't even – like so recently I decided I, – I, I've been uh, in, my, uh, in, my, in my nocturnal – uh, house cleaning, movie watching thing. You know, so I I always watch something like I, I that's how I catch up with Netflix shows and things is that I, I watch them while I do dishes and stuff at night. And I just finished watching Babylon Five, which was great. I never saw Babylon Five, and many people have told me that I have to watch it. It was awesome. I absolutely loved Babylon Five. But I just finished that, so I so I I was looking around for okay, what do I watch next now that I finished Babylon Five? And I and I noticed I was like, oh hey man, I'm like three two or three seasons behind on Doctor Who now. I, I watched Doctor Who finally, the new Who, uh, a, a couple years back, and caught up on that. Uh, but I'm but I'm behind now. But I can't just jump to like season eight or nine. Like I, I, I can't do that. I had to start at season one and go all the, and now I'm going all the way through so that I can get up to there and be prepared for it when I get to season eight, nine, and ten. Uh, so yeah, like that's me. I, I can't, I, I, I can't, uh, I can't. Even when I'm rewatching something, even when I've seen it before, I can't do that. Uh, so it totally goes against my own grain to jump ahead. Um, but at the same time, this is sort of too big an opportunity, and I don't want to. I'm I'm very reluctant to to sort of pass this up. I think that, um, yeah, kind of being a part of being a part of that moment, I think would be pretty awesome. But we'll see. Um, we'll see. Um, hey, you know, Phil Phil is teasing me to saying, "Wish I didn't feel I had to go all the way back to the first Doctor and watch all the classic Who episodes." I was this close, Phil. I was absolutely this close. Uh, if they had been available 
on Amazon Prime, I totally would have. <laughs> I absolutely would have. But they're not available on Amazon Prime. I've got to subscribe to something different. But I'm, I'm probably going to do that, actually. I've never seen the classic Who. And it, I was really excited to see that now, as they were not a couple years ago, the classic Who are now available. So, um Anyway, yeah, yeah, well, but yeah, had they been on Prime, I absolutely would have done that. Um, yeah, so uh, so we'll see. Hakan, I agree. It, well, it's not going to take that many years. Um, the speculation that I've – the most recent speculation that I've heard is that the show is going to likely begin either late in 2019 or in 2020. So it's pretty close, you know, we're um, – and – and we don't move that quickly, <laughs> so you know we need to we need to be prepared. Um, uh, but anyhow, okay. So let's. Um, oh, but the other thing, Philip Menzies would like someone to write lyrics for Million's song to create the girdle. Uh, so that's great. Yeah, to to have uh, Million's song. Music and words would be really, really neat. So, yeah, if somebody wants to work with uh, uh, with uh, Philip Menzies, a resident film film composer, uh, to uh, uh, collaborate there on a song that Million will sing, that would be awesome. I would absolutely love to hear that. So, uh, you can go to the go to the discussion boards. Uh, and the the discussion boards are just at forums.mythgard.org, uh, and you'll be able to see the um, the film film discussion board. And uh, get everything going there. So, uh, anyway, yeah, <clears throat> yeah, connect with Philip there and uh, and and see what uh, see what you guys can do. That would be great. That'd be great. All right. Um, good. Well, let's let's get to it then. Let's move on to Fanor. So, all right, couple things going on here. Several questions. A lot of things going on here uh, uh, that we're being prompted for in this slide. A lot of really interesting things to think about. Let's start first, because I think that the very first thing we have to do is really get inside Feanor's head, which is sort of a you know unpleasant place to be. Um, but we need to understand. We need to understand Feanor's um, mentality here. What is going through Feanor's mind? Why does he do what he does? As I was just saying a few minutes ago, it seems an entirely unreasonable thing to do. I mean, apart from the fact that it's a bad thing to do, right? Apart from the fact that um, it is a betrayal of his own kin, including his own half-brothers. Well, at least one brother. The other one's already left. Um, What... It seems imprudent as well. I mean, even from a purely cold, calculating standpoint, it decreases his ability to make war on Morgoth, right? The the host of Fingolfin is there because they chose to follow him, Feanor. Um, So he is leaving behind people who have come to follow him, right? Uh, so it doesn't, it's, again, on one level, it doesn't make any sense. I think that there has to be, there has to be a level of distrust there, right? He has to distrust them. Um, and that they could be 
grumbling, right, as Hakan is suggesting, which I think is entirely sensible. Um, Hakan says, after the doom, the people of Fingolfin curse Feanor and claim that he's brought disaster for everyone so he won't feel liked by everyone and probably doesn't trust them. Yeah, exactly. The fact that he suspects they're going to turn on him, uh, an increase of paranoia in Feanor seems like the sensible thing for us to do, right? That Feanor becomes increasingly paranoid that Fingolfin is going to turn on him. Um, that he believes that, you know, maybe he's he's now saying... Um, does he have a... Con- we have to give him a confidant, don't we? I mean, he needs to be able to articulate these things aloud unless we're just going to have scenes with Feanor talking to himself or something. But, I mean, we kind of need... Uh, one to- of his sons, maybe? It would have to be one. Which one, though? Um, not Mythros, presumably, as Mythros is not in sympathy. And that scene where, you know, Mythros is like, so, whom shall we fetch back first? Fingon the Valiant? Right? That's, uh, that, that scene's not going to happen if, if Feanor is, if he's been in Feanor's confidence. So it's not Mythros. Like maybe, uh, maybe like a Korofin or, um, uh, you know, one of the, one of the sons who seems, seems most, mo- like, by by their later actions, are right. most uh, most most alike him. Right. I think Wally agrees with this suggestion. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Kurofin. I would say probably. I mean, probably. Kurofin is the one who seems to be most like. I mean, is is the one who is the the greatest craftsman of his sons, right? So it, that would be an easy way to sort of explain how Feanor, like why Fe, he would be sort of Feanor's favorite or Feanor's confidant. Um, Feanor could have the most respect for him because of his, uh, you know, because of his his crafting abilities, right? Um, uh, so... I think I would, and Kurofin we know, think also of the role that Kurofin is going to be playing in the uh, usurpation of Nargothrond as well, and the way that he speaks the words that he speaks and sways the crowd um, in a, you know, a rather sort of Feanorian fashion. So um, it's not that Kurofin is going to step into the position of Feanor, um, you know he's not the eldest, and he's not going to be the leader after Feanor is dead. But I can see him being the him being the confidant. I can't really see. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. I I I can't really see any obviously better candidates. Um, yeah, yeah, Murray. Exactly. I think that we could we can we can show Kurofin as being. His father's yes man. I think that's a good way to a good way to think of it, right? It's not that he is singled out as his heir or something like that, but he's the one his dad talks to because he's the one who is who is sort of most like his dad. Anyway, again, one of them has to be his confidant. Go ahead. I think we can exclude Maglor. Yeah, we can clearly exclude. It has to be not Magor or Mythros. That's the main important thing, um, and apparently not Amrod. <laughs> so we, we that rules out Amrod and Amros pretty much. Uh, so really, we're only left with Kurofin, Karanthir, or Kelgorm uh, uh, as the three options. Karanthir seems to be too much of a thug. Kelagorm I would consider, but Kurofin seems the obvious candidate, again, given the sort of similarities uh, uh, there. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, okay. All right. So let's say Kurofin. So he's talking to Kurofin, 
And we have to show his developing paranoia. So he thinks that Fingolfin um, maybe... Is he going to be talking about... I mean, is he going to be talking about the Doom? Because, you know, the Doom foretold betrayal by kins, but, you know, you know, of one kin to another. And is he going to be using that as an argument? Is he going to be saying... Um, uh, Look, you know, we were told that we were going to be betrayed, and I always knew that that, you know, that little weasel, uh, Fingolfin, couldn't be trusted, and he's going to betray. If, you know, if, if he comes over, he's going to betray us. He knows, for instance, the host of Fingolfin is larger than the host of Feanor. Uh, you know, so, I mean, there are more followers of Fingolfin than there are of the Feanorians, so. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, that seems like the perfect setup, right? Uh, and, and that's the that's, that would be the perfect irony if the if Feanor, um, um, you know, he 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 in the in the original scene he apparently rejects the doom of Mandos. Right. But uh, it's great if in the following scene he starts he starts referencing it as reason for making certain decisions. Right. And I think everything's teed up for him to be very suspicious of thing and nervous about Fingolfin, like you said, he has the larger host and stuff. So yeah. yeah. I think he should definitely be citing the Doom, say saying, Hey Mando said we'd be betrayed. Yeah. And Fingolfin already defied me once. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I really like uh uh Nick was just uh yeah saying, you know, of one thing the Lord of Death speaks true. Yeah, exactly. He he, he shouldn't be like responding as if he got new information from the doom, right? He doesn't rely upon it. He does reject it and he holds himself above it. Um, but yes, but exactly that line, I mean, just as, just as in his own oath and his, uh, and, and, you know, his speeches under torchlight in Tyrion back in episode one, he is speaking against Morgoth and yet he is, you know, most of the things that he's saying have their uh, origins in the lies that Melkor told. Uh, so here he's rejecting the doom and yet he's clearly, you know, also being influenced and guided by the doom. Um, so, yes. So, so basically I, the way that Fanor would probably say it is that he always knew that treachery was coming and he didn't need Mandos to tell him. Right. But yet, nevertheless, like it's clearly in, in the context of the doom of Mandos, uh, that he's, that he's referring to this. So, um, yeah. Okay. So he's, so he's convinced that they're going to, this must be, so how many conversations do we need? Like, how do we build this up? We have a, because he, he, the decisions he makes, right. First to leave. So, you know, the first is just the departure to sail across and to sail across in secret, right? To depart in secret, rather, uh, from the coasts. And then second, to burn the ships once they get there. Um, and... So I think that means there's at least two conversations. There, I think so. Each of those decisions. You know, maybe... And I kind of yeah. like the suggestion that in the, the PowerPoint that we have that the... The decision about burning the ships should be prompted by somebody, um, somebody of good faith and goodwill, saying, "Okay, well, let's turn the ships around and go back and pick up the dolphins people." Yes. Um, so I think maybe the decision about departing in secret could be prompted by sort of a, a confidential conversation between Thanor and and, uh, and Corifin. Yeah. Yeah. Because, of course, the other thing we have to deal with here is not just the progress of this in Feanor's own mind, but the communication of it to others, right? 
Um, how does he? So, because we we not only have to get behind, get around, get get our our minds around what Fanor is thinking during this process, but what is everybody else thinking? Like, so the Fanorians, like, what's up with the Fanorians? Why are they? You know, what what is their reaction? Um, do we think that they are more along with Fanor, or do we think that more of them have a sort of a Mithros, um, uh, uh, the you know Mithros reaction, and they're all shocked? Um, Marie points out that they're on different ships, so we can show Fanor's host j- disjointed during the crossing. Yeah, I mean he needs to communicate to them to go, and he has to communicate to them to go in secret. Right. I mean, they 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 all are going to leave before Fingolfin's people are aware that they've gone, um, and so that that's going to require some some coordination, and that seems to need some explanation, doesn't it? You know, be like, okay, hey everybody, we're going to sail over, but don't say anything to anybody. Just leave quietly. Like, how is that going to be explained? Um, I mean, I guess it's true that they don't have to know that they're leaving in secret, I guess, but um, but I don't know. I mean, how does an entire, how does the fleet leave by night, you know, without anybody? I don't think they can leave in secret without knowing that they're leaving in secret. <laughs> it sort of seems to be kind of a problem. It does and kind of seem it, to be a problem. And if it's, plan- and if it's planned ahead... And and communicated to his whole host. How on earth is it kept secret? Right, right. I mean, he could. Dr. Tolkien thought through the logistics of this. <laughs> yeah, he could tell them, uh, you know, like the other captains of the ships, that you know, he could send out word to have them stand ready to depart, uh, you know, at any at any minute. Um. Uh, and yeah, yeah, Marie, I know they're already on the ships, so that's... I'm not worried about that. Um, so here's a question. Um, I wonder if maybe maybe we... Um, instead of making it sort of a secret, abrupt decision, maybe there's sort of a... Maybe like maybe like there's advanced planning that, you know, Feanor's, Feanor's host already controls the ship, so they'll go first... Right, and the part that's secret is the actual moment of departure. So that, so that it's not weird that they leave by themselves because that's what everyone expected to happen. Um, but, but the fact that you know Fingolfin wakes up and Feanor's just gone and he didn't say I, he was leaving right that instant right. seems ominous and weird. Um, but, but it's not immediately a betrayal. Maybe. Yeah. Um... I, uh, I guess the reason I'm talking about, I mean, several people are asking why does it have to be, um, why does it have to be secret? Um, but, uh, I, so I'm trying to find the, 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 the passage. Um, okay, let's see. 
Therefore it came into the hearts of Feanor and his sons to seize all the ships and depart suddenly, for if they had retained, for they had retained the mastery of the fleet, and it was manned only by those who fought there and were bound to Feanor. And as though it came at his call, there sprang up a wind from the northwest, and Feanor slipped away secretly with all whom he deemed true to him, and went aboard and put out to sea and left Fingolfin and Araman. And since the sea there was narrow, right? He, you know, he so then he gets across. Um, and uh, then Fingolfin, seeing that Feanor had left him to perish in Araman or, or to return in shame to Valinor, was filled with bitterness. Um, the reason I like this... So my point is not just, well, it says they slipped away in secret, so they have to be, is that I really like the effect of that. Like the that moment when the host of Fingolfin wakes in the morning, you know, when dawn comes and they look out and the ships are just gone, right? And they realize that's the first moment when they suspect, whoa, hang on, we, we've just been betrayed. We've just been abandoned. They don't might, might not know it for sure, right, yet. But that that's uh, the fact that the ships are... Uh, that, so I, I want to preserve that moment. You know, that moment seems to me a really important moment um, and one that would that would be really powerful on screen, I think. Just the sight, um, the sight of the, you know, of the coast, which had been covered in the ships of the Teleri, just empty. And the, uh, you know, the people of Fingolfin looking around and saying, um, you know, what is, uh, what's, what's happening? What's going on? Um, so... Yeah, we could take. I agree. I agree we, we need to preserve that moment. That, we that, could that take advantage time. of that wind thing, right? The sudden wind that comes up. Um, that could fit also into Feanor's megalomania, right? So Feanor right. has made the decision to leave, uh, to leave secretly, or he, so he's made this, the. They all know they're going to leave, right? They've talked about it. And they've decided, okay, we're not. We're, we're, we've been going north. We're we're far. We're far enough north. It's time. It's time to sail across soon. So everyone, even the host of Engulfin, can be ready for that, in a sense. Um, but uh, the Fanorians are all ready to depart. He decides, I want to leave them behind. I want to slip away before they even know that we're gone. And then the wind comes up. Right, the wind comes up and starts blowing them all off shore anyway. Right, and then he just takes advantage of the opportunity. So he what signals to them, right? Uh, so he would just have to signal to the other ships to go. Um, how could he do that? Oh, he's got Palantiri, doesn't he? That's easy. No problem. <laughs> no problem. Ship to ship communication is easy as anything, right? Doesn't he? Didn't he make those already? Didn't we have those? No, he doesn't. Oh, we let do he left those behind. Oh, why does he have to? Why can't he take them? Hang on. So wait, Nick and Nick and Marie are both saying that he doesn't have those. Hang on. But they, so they must have a good reason why he doesn't have those. Something that I'm forgetting. Um, um, okay. Right. right. Okay, that's right. I'm remembering this now. Maria's reminding me that uh, if 
Yeah, we did kind of confront this problem before that if the elves of Beleriand have the have Palantiri available to them, it's going to super complicate the plots of uh, of the first age. Um, yeah, I mean, certainly, for instance, Marie. Yeah, if like uh, if Turgon had a Palantir and and you know everybody else could just check in, like, hey, how are things in Gondolin? Oh yeah, we're we're good. Thanks for checking in on us, right? Yeah, that's uh, it. Certainly, utterly changes the stories later on. Um, yes, right. Logistical nightmare. I agree. I agree, Nick. Okay. Um, uh, so right. So we had. Signal. Well, we don't even need fires because we do have like awesome blue Noldor lamps, right? So they can uh, they can signal to each other well enough. <laughs> How about that flag contraption that um, Azog was using in the Hobbit? <laughs> yes, they built an elaborate semaphore rig uh, uh, to communicate back and forth. Yeah, uh, they can communicate by Fanorian lamps. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that would be, I think that would be, that would be fine. Um, uh, so he has, so yeah, so we, um, he makes his decision of what he wants to do. Then the wind comes up and starts blowing all the ships out. And we, ha- and then Feanor sort of smiles and feels like, yes, so, you know, he, he, seems to be operating under this vague idea that like the wind was summoned up by his own decision, right? That like he's, you know, his own will is controlling the elements or something. I think that he could be far enough gone into megalomania to have at least that kind of vague impression that like, you know, obviously what he is doing is right because, um, you know, the world is, the world is, is definitely, definitely some significance into that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But see, it's hard because, of course, the significance he can't read into it is that Manway supports him, right? Because it's he doesn't he doesn't need the support of the Valar, right? So it's 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 all about him, right? This is his decision, and so like Arda itself is forming itself uh, to uh, uh, to support his will. Um, and yeah, then, yeah, I, I think I think I, I am kind of curious, um, just as an aside, because I never thought, never really noticed that that the passage about the wind before, but are we supposed to, what are we supposed to understand from that? Is it just like, I mean, is it, are there circumstances where you have something like this, a, a, an important, an important occasion and the wind, the wind kicks in, which in other occasions we would say, aha, that's the Valar acting. Yeah. Are the Valar acting here? Or is this like, is this just like, oh no, this is just, just, I, see, that's a great question because I agree in every other circumstance. If this were – I mean it's just like the wind from the sea that comes up to, to waft Aragorn's fleet up the Anduin, right? I mean there's – like does anybody have any suspicions that that wind was just a coincidence, right? <laughs> that wind wasn't just a coincidence. It's clear that that, 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 that it is way too portentous, that wind. Um, uh, this wind seems – equally portentous. Exactly. Though. Except it's supporting a bad thing instead of a good thing. Um, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and again, the... the it does kind of... I mean, I, I don't think... I think it can be in the sense that, that, that you know, um, that, that, uh, that basically the Valar maybe recognize that Feanor is sort of on his path now. Um, and that this is kind of what needs to happen. Yeah, yeah. 
and though it, it and as though it came at his call. Yeah, exactly. As though it came at his call. Um, as though it came at his call, there sprang up a wind. Um, the as though shows how he thought about it, right? The, But it also implies that it didn't actually come up at his call, right? Um, uh Yeah, Hakan says uh, it's sort of it's like Manway asking Feanor a question. Will you use this wind? Um, yeah, I wonder. I wonder. I mean, it almost looks like I don't know a temptation, right? Um, is this Manway's version of what Galadriel did to the Fellowship, <laughs> in a sense, right? Um, like, hey, you know, so Feanor, what would you do if uh, a favoring wind came up? Is it are you? going to betray your brother? Is that what's going on here? Is this, um, if I enable this, are you going to do it? Like, is that, is that what's happening here? I don't know. I mean, that doesn't really seem very man way like to, to do something like that, but it's really, it's really hard. Um, Hakan is suggesting that, um, it sort of, uh, oh, and Nick was suggesting the same thing that Manway might be trying to preserve Fingolfin, um, that it seems possible that Fanor might have, uh, uh, might have, might have killed him or tried to kill him. Um, had he, had they, had he come along? Maybe. So Manway's trying to blow Fanor away. Yeah, exactly. This is Manor. This is, this is Manway saying, do I have to, do I have to separate you two? Fine. Fine. You know, actually, actually, I guess from, if you, if you apply that, frame to it it now appears to be a beneficent act in the sense that you know like look Feanor Feanor is going to do what he's going to do and there's sort of it the sooner he's gone the better maybe we could actually save Fingolfin from from any further folly I mean maybe maybe the hope is um if we if we send Feanor away and the ships are gone maybe Fingolfin will turn around Um, right I kind of wonder can we take advantage of this to set up an interesting character moment for Fingolfin where, where we really show that, that we really play up the dilemma of the decision that he has to make and maybe maybe portray it as, an, as a situation where the, 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 the Valar are actually hoping he will sort of turn around yeah. in shame and come back. And yes. And that, yeah. and that that becomes Fingolfin's big moment where, nope, and the, and the, and the Valar are just like, ah, crap. <laughs> right. So that it, it's, it's not... So that un, um, unlike Fanor's own megalomaniacal assumption, the wind isn't all about him. It's actually about Fingolfin. Um, it's it's sending Fanor because Fanor has made his decision, and the Valar know Fanor has made his decision. Um, he made that perfectly clear to uh, you know to in his response uh, to, uh, to 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 Mandos or whoever it was who delivered the uh, the doom. Um, it was. Um, so I mean, yeah, he he made that really clear. So they so they send him off with the wind, leaving Fingolfin and giving him the choice because that choice and that's one of the things that I that you know I definitely want to get to is that choice by Fingolfin is a crucial one. Obviously, the choice to go on and cross the Helcaraxa that's a big deal. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting. Tony says it could also have been trying to save Fingolfin from the temptation to kill Feanor. Yeah, I mean, 
that the two of them might have come to blows seems likely. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. As Hakan says, even if Feanor wouldn't have killed Fingolfin, he's bad company. Yeah, yeah, he is. I like bad company in the sense of being a bad influence, right? Like, you know, F- Fingolfin is running with the wrong crowd, uh, and uh, the uh, the Valar know it. Um, yeah, I... I uh, I agree. Um, these things, so putting Fingolfin in the place where he has to make an independent choice, not just following Feanor, because that's another major thing, right? He swore an oath that he would go wherever Feanor, that he would follow Feanor. And so he's following Feanor in pursuance of his oath. Um, when he's abandoned, when Fanor has left him behind, he's clearly absolved of his oath, right? Um, you know, Fanor has chosen to, if anything, you say, if he's going along with Fanor, if he's following his oath to go along with Fanor, he'll not go. Because Fanor told him not to, Fanor disinvited him from, from the trip to Middle-earth, right? Fairly actively by abandoning him on the beach. So his, in a, there's a sense in which Fingolfin has not made his own totally independent choice to go. Um, that's obviously not totally true. Um, Finarfin, for instance, made the active choice to return, and Fingolfin didn't, and clearly could have. But of course, Finarfin hadn't sworn that oath. Um, anyway, so the idea of giving him, giving Fingolfin that opportunity to make an independent call, what is he going to do? Um, I think that that's. Uh, uh, that kind of makes sense, actually. Um, and Tony, I agree, it does make the deaths of the elves who cross even more tragic because they were given an opportunity to turn back. Yeah, absolutely. And makes even more sense of why the Valar don't help them when they're over there, right? Why the Valar shut the doors against them as firmly as they do. Uh, because they um, uh, they chose, right? They had multiple, not only multiple chances to turn back, but uh, they chose against great odds, right? In in the face of great adversity, in the face of rejection, and you know this uh, very active disinvitation, right? They chose to go on anyway. Uh, they've definitely, uh, they've definitely made the bed which the Valar are then allowing them to lie in, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, Nick, it, it, we could have a scene early in the episode where Fingolfin considers the possibility he might have to stop Feanor. Um, in fact, Nick, it occurs to me that would be a good first scene for the for this episode, wouldn't it? To begin this episode not with Feanor, um, but with... Um, Wait, where did we end the last episode? What was the final scene of the last episode? Was it Círdan fleeing from Eglarest? Is that is that where we ended the last episode? Yeah. Uh, um, I think that was it. Círdan sailing off, right? Um, so... When we return to the Noldor here for the first time in several episodes, wouldn't it be fun to return not to Feanor but to, fin- to the to the camp of Fingolfin and have Fingolfin and some others, Turgon and Fingon, 
suggest themselves. Um, I mean, it seems like really sort of the inner, uh, uh, the inner, um, the inner council, right, of Fingolfin, his closest people, uh, would be Fingon and Turgon, especially. Um, but then also, you know, maybe including Finrod, uh, and Galadriel as well. Um, but anyhow, um, so at least his, those two, his two sons there, uh, those two sons, I should say, and then, uh, maybe Finrod and Galadriel as well. Um, but, uh, but any, but, you know, maybe this is a smaller conversation. Maybe this is just Turgon and Fingon and, uh, Turgon, wait, Fingolfin and Fingon and Turgon talking. Uh, and, um, they're expressing concerns, right? They're expressing concerns about Feanor, right? Like that he's going... Um, Fingon would be able to be testifying, right? Because he was just hanging out with Mithros, right? So he can say, you know, uh, the whole scene could begin with uh, Fingon returning from the ships of the Feanorians and saying, you know, Dad, can we talk? Like, I was just hanging out with Feanor and, like, that dude ain't right. Right, like he, there's something. Um, he's he's get, he's getting he's getting worse. We might have to, you know, we're 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 kind of following a lunatic here. Increasingly, it sort of looks like um, he is Fey, right? He is Fey and dangerous. Could be what uh, f- could be Fingon's assessment, right? And. Uh, um, yeah, even Mithros is concerned, Nick. Exactly that he he would he would he would say that. In fact, Nick, I was just thinking the same thing. This is tempting me actually to go back one step further and have a conversation between Mithros and Fingon, right? Um, in fact, golly, it kind of seems like it's a shame not to have them have another a conversation before they, because the next time they're going to see each other is when Mithros is stapled to a wall. So. Um, Gosh, okay, actually, maybe that's where we should start. <laughs> maybe we should do that, because we we want to have a farewell conversation, but they don't know it's a farewell conversation, so we have to set that up right. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm kind of liking that idea. So if we have a, if we start with the conversation between Fingon and Mithros, um, and... Anyway, and my job is not to get it's not to write the outline, so I don't, I don't want to get too detailed. Um, however, you guys think it's best to 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 set it up. But I would like a conversation between Finrod and Mithros, Fingon and Mithros. Sorry, and uh, I apologize for misspeaking. Uh, I'm a little sleep deprived and am likely to misspeak, always likely to misspeak, but even more uh, here talking about this stuff. Um, but uh, okay. Yeah, exactly, Marie. We turn to Fingon and Mithros' roles as peacemakers between their fathers. But see, Marie, what I'm thinking is the last conversation between Fingon and Mithros, they should have a fight, right? They, sh- they should be arguing. Um, as Fingon should be saying to Mithros, like, Dude, you see your dad, right? Your dad is like, this, is, this isn't okay, right? I mean, like, you can see that your dad is going straight off the deep end, and Mithros would defend him to Fingon, right? Mithros would be like, oh, what are you talking about? Like, that's, that's absurd. My dad's totally fine. Uh, and, uh, 
and so they, they we should have them part not exactly parting in anger they shouldn't be storming away but the fact that the last conversation between them was an argument should really weigh heavily the reason I want this the, re- the reason I want that is that it makes Fingen's decision later on even cooler like much cooler I think um, because if Fingen cho- you know so Mithros would never suspect that you know because he, he he and Finrod departed in anger right uh, and then he Mithros you know and the Feanorians abandoned him uh, Fingen so when Fingen is uh, you know th- that he anyway y- you see how this kind of sets it up right um, and Mithros will feel bad when they when Fanor decides to abandon them because he's like now Fingen is going to think that like I have turned my back on him you know uh, so yeah no, I, I like that I like that okay so they talk and the concerns about Fanor come out there and uh, and they depart in anger not like hatred or anything. It doesn't have to, you know, it don't come to blows or anything, but it's ugly. Like they, you know, they're, they're arguing, they're arguing cause they're both, they're both defending their dads. Um, uh, and it's going to be the memory of that conversation, right? So this also sets up, of course, Mithros at the end of this episode, as he watches his dad set fire to the ships and the realization we can show in Mithros, like, holy cow, he was, he was, he was right. Fingon was right and I was wrong. Dad's dad's nuts, right? Um, yeah, uh, Nick wants Fingon to say he will kill you all one by one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you should totally say that. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, he will kill us, or or he or even he will kill us all one by one. Uh, and then uh, yeah, Mithras, that's going through Mithras's head later on. Um, yeah, I like that. In fact, if we, maybe we could even just do that instead of having the conversation with Fingolfin. I mean, we we would want to set up Fingolfin like uh, I would be tempted still to have it because have Fingon come back and 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 report it, and have somebody like Turgon say, you know, Dad, you might have to step in at some point. Like I know you swore this oath and everything. Like I get it, but you know, how long are we going to follow the you know the leadership of uh, you know of uh, uh, of a lunatic, right? You know of a of a megalomaniacal lunatic. Um, this isn't right. Like we're going to have to stop him and have Fingolfin be actively considering that. Um, this also, of course, sets up a really important point, which we'll need to come back to later. Which is why does Fingolfin? make the decision to cross the Helcaraxa. What are his reasons? What are the reasons to go? Um, because it's not... It does not at all seem an inevitable thing to do. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Hakan says, you have to save Fanor from himself, Dad. Yeah, you're right. That would totally be Targon's line. Right, wouldn't it, Hakan? That's very good. That's very good. You guys are awesome. Um, okay. So... After this happens, the night after this conversation, you know, the fiery conversation between Fingen and Mithros, the Feanorians are on board the ships. Feanor makes his decision, talking to Kurofin, we should just slip away, we should leave them behind, they're going to betray us. Uh, 
uh, if we're not careful, we're, we're going to betray us. We are enough. We are strong enough. You know, uh, uh, we, you know, the eight of us and our people, we can take Melkor down ourselves. Uh, you know, this, this vengeance is ours and it's not theirs anyway and we can't trust them. Um, so let's, let's go. And then the wind picks up. And the wind picks up and blows them out to sea. Now, now, in the other ships, they don't realize they're leaving yet, right? Like, you know, they're, they're ready to go. They're all in the ships, but you know, they're they're sort of assuming some arrangements are going to be made with the people on the shore. Again, everyone there's everyone else other than Feanor and Kurifin are assuming that they're the first wave of the shuttle service, right? Um, and no arrangements have been made or, or or whatever. But anyway, so they're they're pushed out to sea by the wind. Feanor signals to just go, right? Follow me. Uh, and they, they, you know, they send the signals and they make it across. Uh, so we could even have Mithros on another ship receiving the signal from his father, right? And saying to the, you know, like, so he and, like, somebody else uh, are there on that ship. Uh, maybe he, he and him and Magwar are on this other ship. And uh, they receive the signal and they're like, okay, you know, we're going. Uh, okay, I, you know, all right. So uh, we're we're heading over. Um, and... Um, and then they go and they get to the other side. So now that's why they successfully slip out secretly. Nobody knows. It's, it's unannounced. Um, they don't make any extra noise doing it. You know, and nobody, you know, like says goodbye or blows a horn or anything else to sort of announce their departure. Um, which is the kind of thing you'd do, right, if you were not slipping away secretly. Um so that's how they end up over there. And then he, Feanor, has to have, has to make the announcement, right? Has to make the declaration over there. Um, and this is when Mithros has this horrible experience, right? Of realizing that his friend was right uh, and uh, that his dad has, in fact, lost it. Um, and he's going to first oppose him and then stand aside when he can't sway his father. Now we come to the interesting Emrod question. Uh, so, context for this. Uh, for those of you who think it's a little bit odd that we're, discu- that we're discussing the question of Feanor killing his son Emrod and burning him alive inside one of the ships, um, this is not an arbitrary idea. This, uh, this, is, a t- this is a Tolkien idea. Um, this is a very late Tolkien idea. This is in the Peoples of Middle Earth, so it's volume twelve of the history of Middle Earth. Uh, Tolkien had suggested uh, this substory. It didn't make it into the published Silmarillion. Uh, it's one of many ideas that Tolkien had later in his career that didn't get fully developed and didn't get you know things that he seemed to be thinking. Maybe I'm going to go and I'm going to put this in. You know, I'll, I'll, I'm going to I'm going to rewrite the. The, the the stories around this, but he never got around to actually writing them. Um, so they didn't get included in the published Silmarillion. But, the, so the, the story is that Amrod, they land, right? Fanorians land, and they're, they're on the beach, right? So they set up a camp on the beach. Amrod says, "I'm going to go sleep in the ships." Right? I, you know, he's like, "I don't, li- I don't, I don't want to sleep on the beach. I'm going to go sleep in the ships." Um, and uh, 
then when they set fire to the ships, they burn Emrod alive. But the implication is, yeah, and as uh, Marie says, it's in, if you look in the peoples of Middle-earth, it's in what's called the Shibboleth of Feanor. Um, and it's, yeah, as she points out, it's barely a side note to the story of why the twins' names are both Ambarusa, right? So they, um, it's it's all about the names of the twins. It's Tolkien, right? So the whole story is a gloss on the meaning of the name, essentially. <laughs> but but there's also an implication that Fanor kills him on purpose. That he suspects, at least, that Amrod was going to set off for home. Um, and that the story there... if I, It's been a long time since I've read this, so, Marie, you can correct me if I'm, if I'm misremembering it. Um, but the issue is the connection between him and his mom, right? That Amrod is the one of the seven sons who is most attached to their mother and who most regrets leaving her behind. And so he's decided, or at least Feanor has sus- suspects that he's decided, I'm going to take one of these, sh- I'm going to, I'm going to steal one of these ships back and I'm going to return to Valinor and I'm going to go back to mom. And Feanor suspecting that Amrod is going to run away, AKA betray him, uh, knowingly sets fire to the ship with his son in it to kill his son rather than have his son betray him. Um, now, again, this is not in any way a fully developed story in Tolkien's Legendarium, but it, this, this, again, Tol- but Tolkien is the source of this story. Um, it's fairly sensational, and I know the outline team was excited to use this from the beginning. This was an early suggestion, uh, by uh, Marie, I think. Um, but, um, yeah, Brianna says that the death of one of the twins is one of her favorite Tolkien revisions uh, and that it really adds to the story. I certainly agree. I want to make sure that it works symbolically. Um, that is... How do... We can easily make it work symbolically. Amrod, his youngest son. I mean, they're twins. I know, but Amrod is the young, or is the younger of the twins, isn't he? Isn't that also? Marie reminded me in that sidebar in the Shibboleth. Isn't that also what's being articulated there? Um, something about that. Anyway, sorry. Um, he. Uh, oh, well, Nick. He wouldn't know. He he would be he would be boarding it. He would be boarding it in advance. It's he wouldn't be boarding it while it's on fire. So no, no. The idea is, they arrive and then they camp. Uh, so they're going to rest for that day. They're not going to send the ships back right away. So it's it's in the night when they slip away. You know, it's like evening of the next day by the time they get across and land. And so they camp there over. They camp on the beach overnight. Then the next morning, um, or that same night because it's more dramatic to set fire to ships in the dark than during the day. But whatever. Okay, so that same night, uh, or before dawn, at dawn the next day or whatever, um, while it's still dark enough for the burning the ships to look awesome, they say, okay, like, so now do is so we, you know, had a nice night's sleep on the beach. We, okay, I know it's always dark. I know, right here, when we're talking about morning. See? Sleep deprivation, as I tell you. Uh, yeah, okay, I, yeah, I, I, 
I'm remembering. I'm remembering. Okay, so they get over there, and it's they're 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 they they sleep right, and then they're like, okay, let's send the ships back over, right? But the point is, they they've been there for a while. They don't just get there and then immediately disembark and then immediately send them back, right? Everybody disembarks from the ship. One hundred percent disembarkation. Anchor the ships. Let's leave, and they all come to the surface because they're arriving in Middle Earth. It's a big moment, right? You know, Fanor steps first off the ships, and he is going to make a speech. Right, he's gonna. He's like, you know, and I defy you, Morgoth, and uh, you know, and I claim this land for myself, and 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 various other megalomaniacal things I'm gonna say, and then he, uh, uh, and then he, and, you know, and then they set up a camp, right, uh, a, a, a temporary camp, and he he asks everybody to disembark, right? He wants everybody off the ships, um, so he tells everybody like, this is our first, you know, this is our first uh, our first night in Middle Earth. Um, after uh, uh, after our long you know exile in Valinor, so let's all come. So everybody is there. Um, Amrod at that point, prior to the decision to burn the ships, then if he's going to make a choice to get get on a ship and try to and and think about trying to steal one, he's going to get on the ship then, right? But he's going to go. He's going to sleep first. Everyone's all tuckered out, right? Because they've been sailing across the the sea and everything. So um, uh, so Amrod goes to sleep on board the ship. With the intention to take it back the next day. Uh, yeah, I know, day. I, I, I get it. But I'm talking like after the there there are sleep cycles, right? They still even in the darkness. They you know even even under the starlight, uh, uh, the elves are going to have circadian rhythms, aren't they? Uh, <laughs> of some kind, right? Even of an elvish kind, uh, with uh, you know walking in elvish sleep uh, in, in elvish dreams, like Legolas does or whatever. Um, anyhow. The point is, he gets on board the ship. It's only after then, so he's the only one on board the ships, and nobody else knows that he's there, uh, that they set fire to the ships. So, okay. Um, I'm... <clears throat> there are a couple things that would have to happen in order to set this up, right? Thing number one. Hakan, exactly as you say... The closeness of Amrod to their mother is something that has to be set up. And it does seem a little weird to set that up now just at the last second, right? Um, We might have to go back and rewrite a touching moment or two. In fact, could we introduce... It doesn't have to be a long conversation. Like, a few seconds, right? Of, um, for instance, a long, lingering embrace between Amrod... um, uh, and uh, uh, and his mom, right? And then his brother, his twin, kind of pulling him away. We could do that exactly, Hakan. Before the kinslaying. What about what about controversy over his departure? Um, maybe maybe he doesn't want to go, or maybe um, Nernell doesn't want him to go. Well, Nerno doesn't want any of them to go, um, right. but um, but what about what about sort of a she doesn't want any of them to go, but she sort of gets like you know most of the, most of them are going to go. There's nothing she can do about it, but maybe she kind of says at least leave me um, Amrod. Amrod, right? And and we need to show Amrod's willingness, especially. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if we if we 
plant the first seed of that back in episode one, um, in the departure from, uh, yeah, Nerdanelle. Boy, I'm even blanking on her name today. Uh, I need to sleep more. Um, but yeah, yeah, and uh, he, so... Yeah, yeah. Marie uh, points out Dave Tolkien thought of exactly the same thing. Nerdanelle not wanting him in particular to go uh, is how Tolkien writes her farewell with Feanor in the Shibboleth. So there you go. That's right. Um, so yeah, we could do that. We could do that. We could we could show his un, uh, and then we could show his unwillingness to go. And all we'd have to do is return to that. We just need a conversation between Emrod and Emras. Um. Right, in which Emrod confesses. Because see, here's the problem: if Emrod is totally on his own, again, we need somebody for him to talk to in order for it to for the viewers to have any idea what he's planning to do when he gets back on board the boat. We could have it just be a tragedy, but see, I, I, I'm not. <clears throat> I don't think. All right. Well, uh, hang on. Let, let me just spell out these options more clearly. Option number one. Accidental tragic death of Amrod, right? In which Amrod merely returns to the ship because he kind of likes, he's more comfortable on the ship and can't get comfortable. You know, so like he's just like, I kind of, I'm tossing and turning here, you know, like I don't like this beach, so I'm going to go and sleep on the ship because it's better on the ship, right? Um, so he is innocently sleeping on the ship. They don't know that he's sleeping on the ship. They set fire to the ships, and then they, they're they like, oops, Amrod was on the ship, and isn't that tragic, right? That's one option. The other option is that he is on the ship because he plans to depart. Thanor has some suspicion that he plans to depart and return um, to Nerdanel, and so... He sets fire to the ship, knowing that his son is on board the ship. This is an execution, um, uh, not a uh, not an accident. The accident thing, the tragic accident thing, could work if we did that. Then that would make Amrod like a symbol of like the death of Feanor's innocence, right? You know, it would be like the the. Uh, he would be in in his dying. It would be like, and there's like. The symbol of Fanor's innocence and humanity being, being destroyed, right, in the burning of the ships. Um, and that could kind of work. But I... Uh, and it... The other effect that it would have would be just to cast this sort of pall of horror over the whole event, right? As if it were like an immediate judgment upon Fanor's decision. Um, like, did you need confirmation that burning the ships was the wrong thing to do? Your confirmation comes in the form of the fact that you burned your own son alive accidentally by doing it, right? Like, that's a pretty clear indicator that 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 was a, that was a bad thing to do. Um, it would, um, it would, it could, and you'd almost have to think it would put a lot of pressure on Fanor's response to that. Right, because if it was an accidental death, he would have to. He would either be wrestling with remorse, or he would 
not be wrestling with remorse, right? Or he would be so far gone uh, that he would just like, what, probably take this as another reason to hate the Valar. Uh, Like this is confirmation that the Valar hate him um, and are conspiring against him. And he's not going to be dissuaded by, you know, the acts of petty vengeance uh, against him by the Valar is kind of what I'm thinking Fanor would be thinking in that kind of a situation. Um, uh, yeah. Um, so that could work. I like that angle. The other angle is the execution angle, right? So option two is Amrod is planning to leave, right? He's going to get a good night's sleep first, but he's he's planning to leave. He's going to, you know, as soon as as soon as he wakes, he is going to um uh he is going to take he's going to steal one of the ships and he's going to set off for Valinor and he's going to go back to Mum. And he in, for this we would need him to have a conversation with Amros in advance. Uh, presumably attempting to convince his twin to come with him. And Amros is like, no way, I'm staying with Dad. Don't do it. Uh, now we would also need Fanor to learn about this. So Fanor overhears them, or Amros tells his dad, thinking, presumably thinking, Dad, help me talk him out of this, right? Like, Amrod is, you know, wanting to go back to Valinor. Will you help me talk some sense into him? And Fanor's like... Yeah, I'll talk some sense into him. And then, like, sets fire to the ships. And Amros would have to be really appalled at that. Um, and Fanor would have to be even further gone uh, than in other versions. Right? I mean, that's the other option. Um I don't. I, I don't like this option as well because I think it. It sort of paradoxically, as you point out, it. It. Um, it. It actually reduces the horror. Yeah. Like I, I think it's less interesting. It. it, it it's. It, uh, Feanor, the Feanor who intentionally burns his son. <laughs> burns his son, is kind of a caricature. Right. As the Feanor who does makes this really bad decision and then unintentionally um, uh, burns his son to death. And then can't admit that he was wrong, but right. instead has to sort of retrospect, retroactively justify his decision, I think ends up being much more interesting. Right. Screen. Right. He has more to wrestle with. Um, um, like in some sense, in some sense, he, he, it, the conversations that he'll have afterward will be almost exactly the same. Yeah. Um, if he does it intentionally, people are going to come and confront him and said, you burned your son to death. And then he has to say various things to justify why he did it. Uh, if he accidentally burns his son to death, they, people come and say, oh, no, you burned your son to death. He says exactly the same things. He still has to come up with a way to justify why he did it. Um, but but we, get, we actually get to see him on screen sort of undergoing the, the sort of, you know, um, character development or the thought process right. that leads to him deciding why it was okay to burn his son to death. So. Right. I think I like the accidental. I, I'm I'm in favor of the accidental option. Yeah, I agree. I agree, and I like that both uh, um, Tony and Marie are suggesting a sort of a middle course where Amron does intend to leave, 
but Fanor doesn't find out about it. The the kill yeah, the, yeah, the yeah, burning yeah. is still accidental. Um, yeah. But that adds this sort of extra layer of tragedy. You know, imagining the you know the youngest of the Feanorians who is really kind of a mama's boy uh, and who wants to return. You know, who is repenting. You know, so you've got the the one Feanorian right. who actively attempts to repent and to return uh, to Valinor uh, and gets burned alive in the ships. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I, I agree with that. I, I think that definitely Amrod should be playing to portray him, so that so that part of his um, part of his justification is um, the Valor turned my son against me. He betrayed me. You know that kind of stuff. Well, so basically, he, it's now it's partially Amrod's fault. But he wouldn't know. Oh well, I, unless I was thinking somebody somebody should know and tell him. Amros would have to know. I mean, in order for us to know, right, yeah. what he's thinking, uh, unless yeah. he leaves a note, <laughs> right, uh, he'd have to have that conversation with Amros. Um, uh, oh, yeah, Phil is also pointing out that that could be played as Amrod breaking the oath. Amrod took the oath, right? Um, could the accident come ar- so, so it, it happens. Fanor doesn't know. Uh, he discovers that he's burned. He blames the Valar. Um, then Amros is, would confess. Wouldn't Amros confess? Hey, so yeah, he was, uh, um, he was, he was going to leave. He, he wanted to go back to Valinor. And then Fanor would, would, would perhaps say, well, yeah, okay, then he betrayed the oath, right? Um, this is what happens. See, sons, this is the kind of thing that happens when you break the oath. Um, I like that. I like that a lot. Because as Marie says, that explains why um, no other son ever breaks the oath under any circumstances, right? Even when the circumstances get increasingly horrible. Um Yeah. So maybe it's a maybe it's it's a kind of confession by Amros, right? Um, you know, Amros is standing there in tears, you know, as his twin has died and he confesses to his father and brothers he was going to leave. Um, he told me he was thinking of he was thinking of leaving and Feanor can then kind of harden uh, and say he broke the oath. Uh, and yeah, yeah, yeah. I like this. Yeah. Um, okay, good. All right. I think that this, this is much better than the, I see. I don't like the, I don't like the pure coincidence thing. I don't like the I'm comfortable, I'm uncomfortable on the beach, and so I just kind of rather sleep on the boat, and then I'm tragically... Dis- that seems too serendipitous, you know? That seems too... There I feel like we're just kind of going out of our way to... Uh, to... Like, the burning of the ships is tragic enough, right? Adding, like, a purely accidental happenstance death of one of the sons of Fanor feels to me like gilding the lily at that point, right? I mean, it's like, do we need yet one more layer of tragedy on top of the burning of the ships? But this has a different function. Um, I like that. I like that. Um, 
Yeah, this works well. It gives it gives fan. I think now it now it actually serves to advance Fanor along his path. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. Exactly, uh, and and doesn't as I would uh, as I would fear. Um, doesn't just distract from the other tragic elements uh, of it. I mean, like, for instance, one tragic element that we don't want to lose is the significance of those ships, right? You know, those ships are the, Silmaril of the, are the Silmarils of the Teleri, right? These are the greatest works of their craft that they will never be able to do again. And Fanor just sets fire to them, you know, for no good reason. Uh, the, the, the mere, uh, simply uh, apart from the betrayal of his kin, of his own kin, the wanton destruction of the most beautiful ships ever to be made in the history of Arda is a huge deal all by itself. Um, And I want to, I want to make sure that we don't totally lose that. And Marie, absolutely. Marie says that is what Kyrdin is for in this episode. That's why we have Kyrdin come across the, burned out hulls of the ships um, and have their, have their uh, mourning. Yeah. Yeah. And Brianna, absolutely. Uh, Mythros. We have Mythros really smoldering, right? In this episode, he, he is, he is actively unhappy with his dad, right? He is now seeing his friend Fingon was correct. Uh, He is not, um, and the idea that Feanor is going to end up turning around and kind of blaming Amrod for his own death because he he swore the oath, uh, you know, Mithros, he's not going to be okay with that. Um, yeah, yeah. And Amros, oh man, think about the impact on Amros. What are we going to do with Amros's character? If we kill off his twin brother in this kind of tragic way, that's going to leave a scar. You know, that's going to that's going to hurt. Amros is going to live with the fact that he helped because Mithros to decide. But, uh, you know, as we're reminded, nobody else does. Amros is going to is going to have been wielding a torch that set fire to the ships with his brother on. Right. But wait, if he knew, how could he do that? If he knew, he wouldn't. Would he, or maybe he thinks his brother's already gone. He and thinks. Amro, I think Amros can't be involved. Or Amros thinks that his brother was taking a ship, and so he thinks his brother's already gone. Why? Why isn't he? Why does he have to be involved in the burning? What if he just wakes up in the middle of it and comes and says, "Oh my God, what have you guys done?" Well, because so I mean. The, there's that line about Mithros alone standing aside. That by itself doesn't deter me if we have good reasons. Fanor's not going to set fire to the ships by himself. No. He's going to call them together and s- announce that, it's, that they're going to set fire to the ships. Because we, ha- we have to have the conversation with Mithros where Mithros says, whom shall we fetch back first? Fingon the Valiant, right? Um, Mithros is the spokesperson of the vast majority of the Feanorians who are all assuming that they're sending them back, they're sending the ships back. It's really just Feanor and Kurufin who are thinking they're, you know, who are already kind of down with the plan that they're not doing this. Um, So, 
uh, I think th- so there has to be a general convocation at the decision to burn the ships. So if Amros knows his brother, the only there are only two options. No, because the Amros would tell him, like Amrod is aboard the ship. There's no way that fin- that Fanar could do it accidentally with Amros there if Amros knows. So either Amros has to not know, or he has to not be there, or he has to believe that Amrod is already gone. He doesn't. He doesn't have to know which ship exactly Amrod is on, right? He doesn't have to see his brother to the ship. So, so the reason I don't like that is I feel like that gets sort of weirdly unnecessarily complicated. You know, so what's he going to say? Wait, well, Amrod was going to take one of those ships, but I don't know which one. <laughs> and it's, it's pro- gone. I think it's. Did, did, well, wait, did we count the ships carefully before we set fire to them? Yes, yeah. Also, don't you think if he came and told and informed them, hey, Amrod's on one of those ships, on one of the ships, and he's leaving, don't you I feel like Feanor, this is part of the reason I don't like Feanor intentionally burning him either. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's a weird thing to do. I feel like the proper, I feel like the, the, the more authentic reaction to that would be to search the ships and find Amrod and seize him. Right and like right. take him prisoner and then confront him. Like I, I don't think Feanor would it would burn him in personally. I think Feanor would want to grab seize him and confront him over the betrayal. You know, I, I that that that's sort of Feanor's character. Like, yes, that agreed. Confrontation. So I think Amros can't be there. Agreed. For some reason, I don't know why he's not there. But. Or he doesn't know. I mean, because again, the problem is. In order to convey Amrod's intention, our only choices are have him convey it, explain it to somebody, and which would have to be his twin, or have him leave a note. Um, oh, what if he finds the note? Finds the note, yeah, oh, after the okay, ships yeah. are already on fire. I think, so maybe, okay, so yeah, maybe we can, uh, maybe we can have our cake and eat it too. Maybe he has a conversation where he confesses that he's thinking about going home, that he would like to go home, um, and that, you know, I think I'm going to talk to Dad tomorrow and see if I can get a ship and all this kind of stuff. And, and Amros is like, okay, well, you know, or maybe he's like, I think I'm going to go, and maybe Amros convinces him. It's like, oh, yeah, him. let's talk about it in the morning. Talk about it in the morning. And then Amrod just changes his mind and tries to sneak away or whatever, and then Amros finds the note. Right, right. Um, yeah, see, Nick, I have the same reaction. That's exactly it. And, uh, Nick says that he feels like the, like a, the note is a little, is, is like, oh, oh, um, is, as he says, a little teen movie. I feel the same way. I don't like the note. I feel like the note is hokey, but I'm trying to find a way around this. Um, I guess, I guess it's enough to have the conversation have Amrod make his intention, his desire clear. I would like to leave. I would like to go home and have Amros urge him to wait and talk to their dad about it when everybody wakes up. I, it's almost impossible for me not to say in the morning. Uh, and I hope you know what I mean by that. Uh, no son implied. Um, you know, talk to dad about it tomorrow. Again, another word I'm not supposed to use. Um, and he assumes, so Amros goes to sleep with the assumption that he's won the argument, that he's convinced Amrod to wait and talk to their father in the morning, but he hasn't, right? So we just show Amros departing. If we show him, if we just show him going to the ship 
at that point, um, then we've established enough what it is that he wants to do that people will know, right? Um, <laughs> how, how do how do how do the Feanorians ever find out that he was on board the ship? Yeah. Well, they could see him. I mean, it would be like horrible. We're going to do a scene of him standing on the burning ship and then his arms and off. then being engulfed in flames. Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> uh, Nick suggests they could find his burnt carcass washed up on the beach, which is uh, even worse. Okay. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, I mean, presumably, if they're setting fire to the ships, presumably they're setting fire to the ships, like with flaming arrows, is, I f- assume, how they would do it, because the ships are at harbor, right? Um so having them standing on on the beach and shooting flaming arrows at the ships. So the ships are already burning. We cut to Amros below decks, right? Uh, and he awakes to the smell of smoke and, like, you know, goes up and finds the ship on fire. And why can't he jump overboard? It has to be, like, I don't know, he has to be engulfed in flames fairly quickly. Um Or, well, he can't be trapped below decks. They have to see him, right? Uh, yeah, because he can't just drown. I mean, the water's too shallow. It's too close to shore to just drown. Uh, well, I'll let, I'll let this. I'll let the script folks work the work out these particular details. But I'm thinking. I think they have to see him. I think we have to have the horrible moment where Emros suspects that he's on board the ship and he's like, Dad, no! And then, like, the, you know, and then they see Amrod, you know, and we don't have to actually show, like, his body on fire, um, but to show to show the ship that he is on engulfed in flame. Um, do, we, do we really think this is better than the note? Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, I do. It's It's more horrible. It's more horrible. Uh, these seem like these seem like details that maybe you um, uh, can let the uh, the writers suss out. You know, after they make make an attempt at writing a scene, if it turns out to not work, you know, the yeah. the uh, of showing him burning, um, we can go back to the note as a fallback. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Lydia asks the very sensible question, why don't they notice he's missing during the decision to burn the ships? Um, yeah. I mean... What if we've established him as the invisible brother? Right, the one nobody ever thinks about anyway. And we could have Amros kind of looking around for him, but it's a, big, it's a big crowd, you know, and it's not like they're standing in ranks or something, yeah. right? Um yeah. So, yeah, they're all kind of milling around. Amros alone notices that Amrod isn't there, and he's kind of looking around for him with increasing concern. <laughs> Maybe we can set this up by having him also miss the oath, so they have to track him down later and have him take it separately. <laughs> in a, in a private ceremony. <laughs> Amrod's gone again. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, Megan is suggesting that they could just hear the screams of Amrod from below decks. 
there is something kind of chilling about just the the screams of Amrod wafting over the sea, you know, to them. Yeah, lots of possibilities. I agree. We 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 can't get too uh, too into the details. We'll have to see, you know, how the flow of the scene goes as they're actually as they're actually scripting it out. But the but the core, but the core, I think the the central idea is Amrod does in fact plan to betray Fanor. But Feanor yes. doesn't know, so he doesn't yes. execute him or punish yes. him. Uh, but but blames him for his own death his... after the fact, right, for breaking right. yes, the oath. Exactly. He confesses his intention to Amros in some form, so that so that Amros, in one way or another, once the ships are burning, so that Amros doesn't know for a fact that Amrod's on the ship. So he's not also intentionally burning his brother. But it becomes readily becomes readily apparent to him very quickly once the ships are aflame that Amrod was on them. And then he's the one that reveals this information to uh, Fanor and his, and, and his, um, and, and his, um, uh, you know, his, his sons and his hangers on. Mm-hmm. And then, um, uh, and then, and then what we get to observe is a, a spectrum of reactions. We get to see sort of the Feanor hardening, hardening his heart and blaming the victim. We get to see Mithros feels horror. Amros feels guilt. Um, um, uh, I assume, Corfin is probably following along with Feanor, blaming Amrod and the Valar and stuff. Yes, yes, and uh, uh, both both Brianna and Marie are pointing out very appropriately. Remember, this is this is this is Dringus. This is Lamoth. Uh, Morgoth screams are still echoing around here. Um, so the idea of Amrod's screams joining with the echoes of Morgoth's screams that's that's good. That works well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, Tony, I was thinking the same thing. Uh, Tony's thinking forward to how are we going to kill off Amros? Because that's now. I mean, this makes this makes Amros a much more prominent character, right? Um, we've 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 given him a real story, and we need to make sure that we follow it up. Um, and none of the other sons of Fanor die prior to um, prior to the fall of Doriath. Right, I mean, there's like this uncanny survival rate among the sons of Feanor, uh, and then, uh, yeah, yeah. No, he's normally he's killed. Uh, well, both Amrod and Amros in the published Silmarillion are killed in the attack on the Havens. Um, but Tony is right that we need to come up with a suitable death for Amros. Well, just note to ourselves as we move forward, this can be a season four note. We need to think about the, the character arc of Amros because, you know, having, uh, having lost his twin in this way, his relationship to the Oath of Feanor, his relationship to his relationship to his dad, his relationship to the Oath, his relationship to his other brothers, they're going to, they're not going to be unchanged, right? Um, so... Yeah, yeah. Um, we have to, we have to, we have to think about how that goes and what that's going to imply for his. Is he going to be? See, I'm, I'm now resistant to having him die there. I agree that there is a really interesting irony. Phil Boswell is pointing out the interesting irony of having Amros die among the ships um, at the Havens, right? Um, like his twin. I agree with that, but. 
I'm not sure that, I mean, is Amros going to go along with the oath? I'm not sure that Amros is going to, is not going to break from the family. I mean, this is a big deal. This is a big moment. I'm not sure he's going to be quite okay with his dad or, or, or view the oath in quite the same way hereafter. Um, yeah, we'll have to think about that, but we don't have to decide that today. Um, okay. Uh, Phil, I know you're right. It is possible that with his twin having just died from trying to break the oath, apparently would he double down on the oath? That's conceivable. But I don't like that. I don't, I, cause I mean, I think that he, he's clearly going to be on the side of his twin. And when his father sort of turns against his twin, he's you know, in the midst of his shock and horror and the, 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 this, the death of his brother, which is going to hit him harder than anyone else because they're twins, um, as he's there in just shock and grief at the loss of his twin, there's his father blaming his twin, saying that he brought it on himself. Like, that's not okay. He's not going to be okay with that. I, uh, Yeah, Brianna, certainly at the least, he's going to be... He's going to be um, with Mithros, definitely. Um, but I'm not sure he's not, he, he, he wouldn't go past Mithros. Because uh, Mithros has other complicated reasons for wanting to sort of say, because I mean, he's his father's heir, right? Um, you know, he's the eldest of the sons, and, and I don't know. I don't know. But like I said, we don't have to, we don't have to decide that now. Um, we can certainly show Amros being especially fiery in his in battles against the orcs, right? I mean, we can have, you know, Amros going all berserker uh, on the battlefield in the next episode. Um, I don't think we need to go too much further than that. But anyway, we can punt this at least a couple episodes, if not into next season. Um, Okay, let's think about, let's go back to Fingolfin. Okay, so the host of Fingolfin has that moment that I was really wanting to preserve where they wake up and look out into the, on, you know, on the beaches and see that the ships are gone. Um, and okay. So debate ensues. Are the fan Orients coming back or is this the first betrayal of the doom that Mando spoke of? We're going to have people. So there are going to be a number of people, of course, among the host who are pretty anti fan Orient to begin with, who are going to very quickly suspect that this is a betrayal. Um, and, but there's no, who's going to be holding out? Fingen, right? Fingen is going to be the leader, the spokesperson for those who is most convinced that the Feanorians have not betrayed them. Um, and he's, um, who's going to be the spokesperson on the side of C, this is the doom coming true, They've totally betrayed us. Who's gonna be who's gonna be most convinced of the betrayal of Feanor? Goadriel? Yeah, Tony was thinking the same thing. Goadriel. Have Goadriel be the spokesperson for they've betrayed us. This is it. That's also kind of nice because she's correct, right? So having her have this like you know semi-premonition of what has happened 
and then have Fingen be speaking against that because of his loyalty. Um, the ship burning. I love the idea of a vision or dream revealing the ship burning to them. And I'm, I'm thinking Turgon uh, should be the one who has the vision. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I apologize for the typo on Turgon's name there. Um, yeah. So uh, if Turgon has the vision to confirm uh, that... Yeah. Oh, and uh, David is asking if people are going to be skeptical of Galadriel because she's so young. Um, well, maybe, but she she wouldn't be the only person. I mean, she would be speak, sort of speaking for the majority, frankly. I would think that the majority of the people of Fingolfin are, are kind of dubious, at the very least, of uh, Feanor and the, and the Feanorians. Um, and Turgon would quickly side with her. And Fingolfin would be kind of, you know... Neutral. Um, Fingolfin is referee in the debate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's trying to he's trying to, you know, be fair. Um, and they're still uncertain. And you know, so he he would say his response right would have to be, "Let's wait and see." You know, we all we can do is wait and see. You know, they may return, and fin, and Fingen would be like, "Yeah, they're totally returning," and. Um, uh, and so they'll, they'll wait and see. And then as they're waiting and seeing, the vision comes to Turgon, uh, just the, the vision of the burning ships. And uh, and he's like, okay, no, it's pretty much official. We're abandoned. And Fingolfin accepts it at that point. Now, this last point on this slide, I think, is a really interesting one. The decision to cross the Helcaraxa is separate from the decision to continue after the Doom of Mandos and does not happen immediately after they realize the ships are not coming back. They travel north along the shore. Um... First of all, one thing I think... I like this idea of separating these two decisions. Um, If... I don't think the choice should be a binary choice between cross the Helcaraxa or return to Valinor. Yet. Right? Um... Mostly because I want to, I want to really highlight the Helcaraxa and the choice to set off. Like as we were discussing before, their abandonment on the shores of Araman gives them every reason, every excuse—not just excuse, every reason. Every I mean, returning to Valinor is the obvious thing to do. They have been left behind. Somebody can say, right? Turgon can tell his father, you are clearly freed from your oath, right? Think, you know, if, if, your, if your oath was, to, was to, to, to follow and obey Feanor, he has abandoned you. You know, he has said, he has expressed that he wants you to stay behind. Um... Brianna, I don't think they can see the glow of the flames across the water. I think it, I think the sea is still too wide at that point. Because um, even the Helcaraxa, I think, needs to be wider than that. Than visual distance. And I think that they're not quite there yet. Um, why but isn't, um, does Fingolfin go? Isn't part of the 
isn't the physical distance between Middle Earth and Valinor kind of sort of sort of weird and fuzzy anyway, right? Like they could be far apart, but that wouldn't necessarily stop them from kind of seeing the flames. Maybe be a magic or something. And of course, if the Earth is still flat, um, <laughs> right? I mean, true. Uh, even if, it, but but I think I think they don't have to see them. But um, but then maybe that's Turgon's vision. Yeah, that's. I mean, I kind of like the Turgon's vision thing. Um, yeah, yeah. I, part of me that the part of me that thinks that that they they shouldn't get. They certainly, even if they can see something, um, they shouldn't receive any kind of confirmation. They shouldn't be able to confirm it. There should just right. be just enough information, um, whether whether it's via, hey, I see some kind of weird light coming over the horizon, or it's turned on stream. Should be just enough information that all of their worst suspicions um, uh, are are sort of provoked. Yes. They're all like, oh, right. No. Yeah. Exactly, because I mean they, they've already been having the debate, right? So it's but, but essentially this like the the vision of Turgon, uh, which I favor over the seeing of any kind of remote visual phenomena. Um, I I think that the 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 vision of Turgon basically sways it, and and even Fingon reluctantly is forced to agree, especially over time. That okay, they're not coming back now. They and he Fingon would be quick. To blame Feanor. And he would try to kind of moderate things by saying, look, I told you guys Feanor is nuts. Apparently he's even more nuts than I thought he was. And, uh, you know, and his, not even his sons are to blame. This is all on Feanor and everyone else is kind of grumbling and not necessarily agreeing with that. But, um, I, I think, um, I think that they, uh, but again, here's my question though. The crossing of the Helcaraxa is a really big deal. Why do they do it? Why do they go on? Why do they choose to do that? What's their motivation? Pride. Pride? Well, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, so, so I guess there's two, there's two separate questions. The first one is, um, why do they want to go at all, I guess if I guess if the, one nice thing about this moment, sort of going back to the way we originally started, um, you know, the way we started talking about sort of the wind and why why that actually is an important like, right. important role in, in right. Alton's character that it, it makes it his decision. If they went because the ship showed up uh, and they just got on, that wouldn't be very interesting. So, so right. why do they go? And then the second question I think is, what are the circumstances under which do they, they go? Do they depart? across the Halkaraxa knowing full well that the ships are burned and there's no other way for them to get there? Or do they kind of start to begin to suspect because of, of their suspicions and Turgon's dream and all that and they're just like, you know what? I don't think they're coming back. You know, um, Well, to heck with them. We don't want their ships anyway. We'll find our own way across. And maybe there's some people saying, no way. We should wait for the ships. Um, I, I think it's, I actually think like I'm setting aside, I guess, the question of why do they go, but I think it's more interesting if they depart without certainty that the ships are gone. That they they don't just say, "Well, we have to cross the Hellfraxa." They decide they 
we don't even want to take the ships, even if there were ships. We don't think there are ships. We don't know, but screw it. We don't want the ships anyway. You are right that, as we were talking about with the wind, one really important element here is the fact that um, this is their independent choice, right? They go to Middle-earth not because they're following Fanor, but because they choose totally independently of the choice of Feanor, right? Um, even choose against um, against like, against the odds, like to, to, to undertake, not just like we're going off into exile, we're going off into uncertainty, but we are willing to endure something really horrible and really dangerous for the sake of going over. Like, it is worth crossing the Helcaraxa to us to go over there. Um, so it's a it, the decision is a really firm decision. You can't just cross the Hell Caraxa because you've got nothing else to do, right? Be, because it seems like the path of least resistance. If there's one thing the Hell Caraxa is, it is not the path of least resistance, right? So you can't just be like, well, it seems like the thing to do. Let's carry on, right? Um, so again, Dave, I'm agreeing with you in saying is this really shines a spotlight on the positive choice. We're going to go. We're we're owning this decision, right? to go over there. Um, so, so the question is, why do they go, like, is, is it enough to have this decision be a confirmation of, of the sort of familial loyalty, which is sort of originally what Fingolfin said, I will, I'll follow you. I'll follow you. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Or do, do they need something beyond that? Is this sort of where they, where they kind of go beyond the, we're falling out of loyalty, and do they have their own independent reasons for doing it? Well, I think the they have to. Realms? I mean, the, the thing we haven't talked about, um, you know, as Tony was just mentioning, they're going to be ticked off, right? I mean, yeah. they're going to want... Yeah. So, now, in addition to we uh-huh. want to take revenge on Morgoth, and we'd kind of like to set up our own kingdoms in Middle-earth, which we know to be a bigger motivation in the minds of some people, like Finrod and Galadriel especially... Um, we we have now the additional we are mad at Fanor, and we want to go back. There will be there should be some who say we should go and take vengeance on Fanor. Who would say that? We we need a character to actually utter that if uh, uh, if, if if we're going to go there. Who should be the spokesperson for vengeance against Thanor, Fanor? I don't know if it's I don't know if it's in character for Fingolfin, but I really uh, there's part of me that's starting. I kind of like the idea of what if we give Fingolfin his Feanor moment here, where he makes a speech and and whips up his followers into in you know uh, um, into crossing the Helcrax. I don't know if Fingolfin should be the guy that says pledges revenge against Feanor, but I, there's part of me that kind of likes that idea, and I almost feel like it has to be him. Even if yes. somebody else suggests it, Fingolfin has to be like we can't have somebody steal his leadership. So I guess it's got to be him. Yes, yes, agreed. He has to be the one who is making the. I agree. We have to give him the speech, which sets them off across the Helcaraxa. Definitely, um, the person who says we should go to take vengeance on Feanor needs to be a bit of an outlier, right? Galadriel. <sighs> That fits our feistier, angrier, uh, more mistake-prone Galadriel character, but no one's going to like that idea. Um, Wait, why will no one like that idea? <laughs> no, people didn't. Lots of people would. Or a Dreth. 
That's hilarious, Tony. I love that idea. Or Adreth, who is like the most namby-pamby of all of the third-generation elves in the Silmarillion. Uh, the idea of Oradreth being like slavering for blood, I think is really, I love that idea. I think that's hysterical. Um, I mean, Oradreth's character could use a, uh, you know, a little adrenaline injection, I think. Uh, but, um, as yeah, I mean, is there anyone among the grandsons of Finway who is more passive, the grandchildren of Finway is more passive than Oradra? Um, Anyway, like and I say this, of course, because Oradreth is famous for two things, right? Sitting by and letting Nargathron get usurped by the Sons of Fanor first, and then sitting by and letting Tur- uh, Turin run the show when Turin shows up. Um, <laughs> he doesn't have a great track record of leadership. <laughs> no, no. Um, we would really be, we'd really be setting the audience. If we made him into the, like, you know, come on, Fingolfin, we should go across there and get Fanor. We'd really be setting the audience up for disappointment. Later. <laughs> yeah, or I mean, and, I mean, it would, it would, it would, it would complicate the his relationship with Kelgorm and Kurufin later on. Uh, you know, when because he would be the one, or no, fin, Finrod would give them uh, 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 sanctuary. Is one who gives them sanctuary in Nargothrond, um, which Oradreth would not be happy about, and then they usurp his position. So that then we would have him, we would shift him away from being spineless to just being uh, powerless. <laughs> Basically, he'd just be impotent, <laughs> right? Yeah. So he's dead set against the Fanorans. There's nothing he can do about it. Yeah. I, I was about to propose Finrod, maybe, um, but but I think you're right. I think. I don't think we can have him be the let's get revenge on the sons of Fane or oh by by all means have sanctuary in my city. Right. It doesn't make much sense. Unless 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 um unless that's sort of an older, wiser Finrod who repents his earlier bloodthirstiness. Which uh, it can be doable. Yeah. But like the, the certainly the the um the like uh, a kind of a vengeance driven Finrod here w- w- seems consistent with sort of the the Finrod who cast his crown aside. Yes. Nobody will support him. Um, yeah. Uh, helping out um, Baron. So. Yeah, I we don't know. we can't make him bloodthirsty. I agree. Uh, you know, uh, Oakwick was just suggesting the thing that I was thinking. What about giving this, having this be the opportunity to bring forward a character we haven't used yet, Angrod? So Angrod, son of Finarfin, he remember he he gets two moments in the published Silmarillion. Right. The first is the moment where he he's the one who comes and conveys uh, uh, Thingol's message to the rest of the Noldor um, saying, uh, hey, uh, you know, Thingol says hi and he'll let you stay in his lands. But like uh, anyway, he conveys Thingol's not very polite message to the Noldor. And he's the one that uh, Caranthir then yells at. Right. Um and uh, he uh, he calls him a tailbearer and and uh, uh, you know suggests that he's a weasel, um, and then he Angrod is also then the one who speaks up and says uh, uh, and tells Thingol the whole story of the kinslaying down the road. So, um, uh, so yeah, I, I and and we we need to start setting up Angrod and. And and Ignor because they're gonna die soon, 
um, in the Dagor Bragalach. Um, and Ignor, of course, we're going to get more of because we're going to get his relationship with Andreth. Um, you know, so we'll get the tragic, uh, requited but unfulfilled love story of Ignor and Andreth. Um, yes, the interracial love affair that didn't pan out. Um, so he's got a story, but Angrod doesn't have anything else. So yeah, Angrod, that works. Um, Marie, I don't think we need to bring in. I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't think we need to bring in other. I think we've got enough third generation elves. Um, I, I, I don't. I don't think we want to bring in others. Because um, I mean, let me say it this way: as long as we have characters from the published Silmarillion whom we're not yet using, we should use those. Right in preference to to any others. So okay, so let's make it a, a, um, Angrod. That makes sense. So Angrod is like we should go and take vengeance on Fanor, and Fingolfin is going to make his. Okay, well, so Dave, what do you think about my my point about the separation though? Because I'm thinking this needs to be a. My first thought is that this needs to be a two stage decision. One stage, because so they, they they wake up and the ships are gone. They have two choices. They either keep walking. They're not at the Helcaraxi yet, right? So they're not actually confronted with the Helcaraxi itself. And keep in mind, do they know it's there? Do they know what it's like? Right? They they surely will not have heard anything but the dimmest rumors about what the Helcaraxi is actually like, right? So until they see it, I think that they shouldn't really. They shouldn't know what it means to continue walking north. So their question is, do we walk north or do we go south? That is, do we return to Valinor? And I think that many of them will feel that they can't return to Valinor, like that ship has sailed, right? They can't, so to speak. They can't go, but it's too late. The doom has been passed on them. They're guilty of the kinslaying. Many of them know it, and or many of them are guilty of the kinslaying and know it. So they, they think they can't do that. So they're like, well, their first decision is... Um, is uh uh is uh, sorry, I I apologize uh, on the to the Twitch chat. We're talking about it. typo typo on the slide. My apologies for the spelling of the name of Turgon. Anyway, um, I so they continue marching north, but they don't again. They, they don't yet know about the Helcaraxa. So their first decision can be kind of passive, right? Um, I. They're willing to go on, but they don't yet know what it costs. Um, I mean, it's almost. I mean, I feel like th- that moment for them is almost like uh, like Bilbo's moment at the beginning of Chapter Five, right? Um, uh, go back, right? Go sideways, impossible. Go on, only thing to do, right? You know, so they're just going to keep walking. What else can they do? Unless they're going to go back to. So the first decision is: Do we just turn around right now and go back to Valinor? And they decide no. So the first decision is not to go to Valinor, but to go on instead. And then they come to the Helcaraxa. Then they're going to come to the... They don't do this in this episode, but then they're going to come to the Helcaraxa. And when they come to the Helcaraxa, now it's clear, okay, when you say you're going to go on, are you willing to pay the price? Right? Are you willing to go on when you see that the road is this bad? Are you willing to undertake the crossing of the Helcaraxa? Is going to Middle-earth worth that much to you? Or will you now turn back? Right? How committed are you to the concept of going to Middle Earth? Is it worth it? Because to me, that's the. By the way, can we, can we have them? Can we have them have a debate 
that uh, that uh, alludes to Bilbo's uh, Bilbo's monologue. There. <laughs> that would be really fun. <laughs> do, we go, do we go south? Do we go west? Impossible. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Uh, yeah, yeah, that would be fun. Um, but uh, so the reason I think that I'm wanting to separate these two these things into two different decisions is that I want to separate the two choices. First, the choice: Do we return to Valinor? That should be the operative question when they when they wake up and the ships are gone. Right? Do we return to Valinor? So they've made the decision: No, we're not going to return to Valinor. We don't think we can return to Valinor. Then the second one is. Is it worth it? Are you willing to pay the cost? Are you willing to go to 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 go to Middle Earth despite the fact that it's it's m- many of you are going to die? Um, is it worth braving the Helcaraxa to go? Are you willing to sacrifice to go to, to get to Middle Earth? So when they when they head north initially, that's kind of that's sort of just a default, right? Like they're they're heading north not because not with the expectation that they'll be able to get to Middle Earth. They're heading north, well, north just no. because they feel like there's no place else to go. <laughs> no, I think I think they I think they know. I think that they've heard they've heard stories that there is a land bridge. They know that there that a land oh, bridge okay. exists. But but maybe maybe they're initially they're heading up there thinking that there's like a a, a nice short um, um, you know like paved road like a, like a, a highway across the, or a public under underwater um, uh, metro or something. <laughs> right uh, well, I mean, I've heard there's a way to get to north up there yeah it should be fine and this and that but it, but I think I think the, the main idea is the reality of crossing really yes they don't really understand that until they get up there and they see it and then yes. like, oh and is that is that where Angrod comes in maybe maybe Angrod Angrod doesn't Ingrod doesn't really have much to say until they get up there and they see the Alcaraxa and then people really start waffling and Vingolfin starts waffling like Vingolfin is wrestling with the what's best for my people exactly um, and, exactly and that's when Angrod whispers in his ear and says you know hey we need to yeah the lesson Angrod would be among those who is worth who is who is willing to go but see that's exactly the yeah. point why are you going why are you willing to sacrifice to go to Middle Earth what is what is what is <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sounding to myself like uh, Miracle Max in, in the back. What's worth? What's so? What, what is worth living for? You know, what, what do you want to come back for? Like that's exactly it. Are they going over for bad reasons? Is it their desire for vengeance that drives them across the Helcaraxa? Because that's really bad, right? I mean, that's that's not a good reason to cross the Helcaraxa. Is it for the sake of helping? The Feanorian, like rescuing the rest of the Feanorians from the madman Feanor, that's a better reason. Um, is it to fight Morgoth and try to save Middle Earth? That's a good reason. Um, there are lots of reasons, better and worse. But but really, when they, it's not. I think it's not until they're confronted with the Helcaraxa itself and they realize what it's going to cost that they have to choose. Like, why are we really doing this? So yeah, Dave, I think they've heard they've heard they, they've heard stories. They know there's a land bridge. They maybe have heard rumors that it's kind of rough, right? But there's been a 0% Valar mortality rate in crossing it in the past, right? So no elf has tried to do this before. Um, so there's no reason that they would have that they would have an accurate sense of exactly how dangerous it's going to be. Um, so, so yeah, so they're going north with the intention of crossing the Middle-earth and with probably the vague understanding that it's going to be 
challenging. Right. But I'm they wondering, don't, yeah, um, no. when, when does when does Turgon's stream come in? So so what's sort of the sequence of events here? First, Feanor departs, and then do they do they remain waiting there until they get sort of as close as much confirmation as they'll get about of the ships burning? Or yes. does Feanor depart and then they depart to the north, and then somewhere along the way, Turgon has his dream, and they uh, like I'm just wondering like. Is it is it that they they remain waiting until they until they start to suspect the ships burn and that's when they go looking for another way or do they head north first they get up see the hell cracks and think yikes we can't do that maybe we should go back and wait for the ships then Targon shows up and says there aren't any ships coming yeah and then that's when they have to decide great question let me first come back to a to a, a small point that is. Sure. why I don't want them to see the light of the ships. I know that it says that in the book. I know that it says that in the book that they see the light of the ships burning from afar and know that they were betrayed. Let me explain the reason I don't want to do it that way. This is to me another issue of translation to the visual medium. Um, again, it's one thing to say that. It's another thing to show it. If we show on screen, so a picture now, picture on screen Fingolfin and the others standing on the shore, looking out to the east across the water, and they're seeing the glow of the burning ships on the horizon. Right now, it look like the ocean is one mile wide. Exactly, that's exactly the effect. Now, we can explain it away. We can explain it away. The world is flat, not round, right? So you can see further. They're elves. They can see, you know, Legolas can tell the difference between a sparrow and a flint and a finch a league off, right? They they can see really far. But we have to explain all that, right? I mean, it's it's still that'll be a that'll be a great scene in the show. Like, oh, oh, look, Feanor's burning our ships uh, on the coast of Middle Earth. Wait, how far? Isn't that like hundreds of miles? <laughs> yes, but we have elvish. But we have elvish sight and can see that. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's that's what you want. In a dramatic <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's going to be impossible for our viewers who are seeing it themselves, right? Because we're not seeing it through the eyes of the elves. The viewers are seeing it from, you know, through the camera, right? So it's, it's going to look like it's really short. And honestly, the question of, like, why don't we, like, build some rafts or something? Like, let's just, like, can't we, like, uh, you know, we're elves. We, we live along. You know, can't we, like, burn out some canoes and, uh, and sail over, you know, go over, like, the, you know, the Polynesians or something? I mean... You'd think that would be plan A if the if the if the sea is as narrow as it's going to look if we have them see this. So that's why it is for the sake again. It's it's in my judgment that is another one of those effects which creates a really good effect in print and in the imagination. But when you actually see it on screen, I think it's going to undermine the effect. Um. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think that we so that's why I don't want to do that. And that's why I am very willing to fall back on the second choice, which is a very Tolkienian option as well. Somebody having a dream of an event that's happening elsewhere is a thing that happens all the time. It's just like Frodo's dreams. It's just like Bilbo's it's just like Bilbo's dream in the Goblin Cave, right? This is a thing. Having what I call a current events dream um is is a is a thing in Tolkien. When a vision comes to you of something that is happening far away or something that recently happened far away or whatever. Um, So, uh, okay. So I think that um, 
the, yeah, and as Marie is pointing out, the Hell Caraxa has to be a very long, hard journey, right? It can't be, it can't just be a few miles. Um, so anyway, all right, all right. Um, so that's why I want to change the bit about them seeing the glow of the light. But Dave, to your, your, sequ- your sequence question is a great one. Here's my vote. My vote is they wake up, they immediately have the debate. There are some who are like, we were abandoned. Goadriel says, they're gone. They're not coming back. We've been abandoned. And Finrod, Fingon says, no, 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 like, they're coming back. Mytheros wouldn't do that. Um, Like, their dad's a little crazy, I'll grant you that, but they're sending the ships back. Trust me. I think people side with Fingon. Or at least give him the, like, Fingolfin sides with Fingon. His, his oldest son, he's like, okay, all right, Fingon, like, I'll, I, I will, like, you're the one who knows them. You've spent the most time with them. I will, I will lean upon your judgment here. And Fingon feels justified. And they're waiting. So he's like, trust me, they're totally coming. Ships, any minute now, we're going to see the ships. It's totally going to happen. And they wait. And they wait for not not too long. I'm thinking a short period of time, but long enough for everybody else to start looking at each other. You know, it's been like, I don't know, again, how do you measure time? Because there's no sun and moon. But they've been around for, for, for some time there on the shore. People are starting to grumble. But Fingon, uh, with flagging confidence, is still insisting that they're going to come back. And then Turgon has his dream. And Turgon has his dream. And in his dream, he sees the ships burning. And he wakes and he tells his dad and Fingon, he's like, Fingon, they're not coming. They burn, you know, Feanor burned the ships. And everybody believes him um, because it's Turgon. And it's the kind of thing that happens. Um, so, yeah, Tony, exactly. Goadriel has a kind of Cassandra moment there. Yeah. Yeah, it's a little Cassandra-ish. It's not totally Cassandra-ish. Like, it's not, not like everybody disbelieves her. There's many people who feel the same way that she does. But, yeah, the, the idea that she has some kind of foresight, I think, is, is good. She turns out to be right. I think that's nice. Uh, and it fits with her character, too, that she is anti-fan or anyhow. So she's going to be um, quicker than many to think the worst of Feanor, so so I think it makes sense on several levels. All right, uh, so then Turgon says, he's, and then that decides Fingolfin. So then they have to make the first decision: do they go back or do they go on? And they decide to go on uh, to the Hell Caraxa. And then it's going to be—it's not going to be until the next episode that they come to the Hell Caraxa and make their second and final decision. Um, so that first decision is simply. Um, that first decision is simply, uh, it's, uh, we can't return. We, we need to keep going, even though Fanor has left us behind. And we can even have some saying of Fanor just what Fanor was saying of Fingolfin, good riddance, right? Um, I'm glad we're out from underneath the leadership of that, of that madman. Um, okay. Um, <clears throat> all right, Good. Let's keep going. I think I have several more slides, but we're getting to the tail end of the action here. These are the, the more minor events. So we've got Cirdan. So remember, in the previous episode, we had the Philothrum being destroyed by <clears throat> the army, chiefly the army of werewolves. <clears throat> so the Philothrum are, the are on their ships along the coast, but they don't see the fleet of swan ships sailed by the Feanorians into the Firth of Dringist. You will remember, going back to our map here, that we had, so we have, uh, here's the Phallus down here, right? Here's the, the where they're fleeing from. So they just fled from here, and they've sailed north up the coast uh, with some uh, a design on uh, scouting, 
seeing if there are armies massing up here and stuff, right? We, you know, doing some kind of reconnaissance. And we had them taking temporary refuge on this island here at the mouth of the Firth of Dringist. So they're here on this island, but they don't see the, or, or like they arrive there presumably after, I guess, Fanor sails by. But in any case, they don't see Fanor at sea. Um, and, uh, uh, but they're here on the shore so that they can, they can see the, uh, the glow of the ships burning. So they, so we still get that image of the glow of the ships, but they don't know what it means, right? So then they sail over from the island, but by the time they get there, the ships have been burned and the Feanorians have left. So all they find are the burned out hulks of the, uh, there we go, the burned out hulks of the Feanorian ships. Of the of the of the of the ships and Marie, as you said, this is when we get first and foremost the lament of Kierden over the the destruction of the ships of the Teleri. He will recognize Kierden, the shipwright, better than anybody else. Right? Will recognize these are the these are the the most beautiful ships that will ever be constructed in the history of Middle Earth. Right? In the history of Arda. Um, and they will they will mourn for them, and they clearly must assume uh, that it's like orcs who destroyed them, right? Clearly, this is work of the enemy. Um, uh, I even I, I think somebody. Oops, we have no other named characters with Kierden, do we? But anyway, somebody asks Kierden, um, who would who who would have done such a thing? Right? Somebody has to. Somebody has to say that. Somebody has to say, like you know. But who would have? Who would have done such a horrible thing? And Kierden would say, you know, I don't know. You know, but it must be. It must be the enemy. Um. Ooh. Yeah. Tony, you're right. We do have somebody. Um. Galdor. Galdor, the uh, the elf from the Havens who comes to the Council of Elrond. You're right. Yeah. We have another elf from. We have another elf from the another named elf from the Havens who has to survive, of course, in order to make yes. it to the Council of Elrond. Curry, we have to. We, we should always remember the uh, the scenes in the uh, in the uh, in Rivendell. There's lots of lots of named elves wandering around <laughs> yes. that don't have much to do. Yes, it's true. We'll have to. We'll have to. We'll have to. Uh, we have to come up with Aristor at some point, right? We, he's he's the elf of Riven of, of Elrond's house who speaks up at the at the council. So we've got to introduce him at some point, uh, sooner or later. Doesn't have to be sooner. Um, but uh, anyway, okay, yeah, Galdor. Okay, so he's talking to Galdor, and uh, uh, and Galdor says, "Who would who who would do such a thing?" And uh, and Kierden can say, "I I." I I don't know anyone who would do such a thing, um, you know. But it must be the orcs. And then, yes, we have to have Gothmog. He sees the, he sees the fires from 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 a distance. You know, maybe one of the Balrogs comes in and is like, "My lord," you know. And then he sees the fire, and uh, um, and then and then Gothmog and Morgoth have a have a conversation where they say, "Oh, those are that's so terrible! What beautiful ships! Who would do such a thing?" <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Gothmog is would be very sensitive to this point. Actually, maybe their conversation is, "Wait, who did that's our job?" <laughs> that's right. Hey. Like, <laughs> who said? Wait, who's who else would do such a thing? <laughs> that's, 
Yeah, that's great. Um, <laughs> so, Gothmog, remember, so Gothmog has been positioned in the north because, in, in order to wait for the Noldor to come, right? In case the Noldor come. So, he's been waiting for something like this. Not burning of the ships, but he's been waiting for their arrival. I, I kind of like the image of, you know, so I'm having this image of Gothmog looking at the, what is obviously a huge conflagration off over the horizon, and um, which, of course, you'd like the Balrogs, they'd be all in favor of that, right? They'd be very pro-conflagration in general. He wouldn't have to know what it, what's happening, but have him look at the glow of the flame on the shore and have have Gothmog you know, smile evilly and say, you know, excellent or something like that. Express approval um, and just leave it, you know, unspecified what exactly his approval is of. Uh, you know, of course, he's showing approval of the fact that his enemies have arrived and he's now got somebody to pound on, which he's been looking forward. You know, the waiting is over and, and the, the action begins, which he's in favor of. But uh, but at the same time, he uh, uh we, the viewers, would be able to see kind of the resonance between Fanor's attitude and and uh, and you know the attitude of Morgoth and Gothmog. Um, so the 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 sort of the implicit, even if unknowing, approval of Fanor's deed by Gothmog the Balrog would be a, would be a kind of a fittingly ironic, you know, a fitting piece of dramatic irony uh, there. I think, um, but okay. All right, so that's good. So Kierden is just going to... So he's going to be mourning. Because he's going to have to assume also, right, that the, he would assume that there were a bunch of Teleri in those ships. Why wouldn't he? Uh, especially since, remember, the last time he and Olway parted, when Olway sets off for Valinor, he and Olway had a plan, right? They both had their callings. He's like, I'm going to be the... You know, I'm going to be the the east guy and you're going to be the west guy, right? And we're going to establish the link between Valinor and Middle-earth. That's our calling. That's our job. So he sees a bunch of Teleri ships. And he's got to be thinking, this is Olway, right? He's starting... Here here was Olway trying to come back. Here was, you know, some of the Teleri returning to Middle-earth to establish this link between Valinor and Middle-earth that we felt that it was our calling to do. And they got ambushed and destroyed. So he's going to be mourning the death of Olway, maybe? Assuming that Olway was in the ships? Then that gives us more delicious and tragic dramatic irony, right? Here's, here's Círdan saying, oh, my, you know, my kinsman Olway is slain. Um, the, these wrecked ships... Um, these wrecked ships uh, uh, are um, the, you know, the evidence that you know my kinsman has been killed. Which, of course, it they they are, but like not the way that he thinks, right? So he assumes so he would be looking for bodies, wouldn't he? But not finding any, and probably drawing some kind of hideous conclusion from that. That there are no bodies, because obviously there would be bodies, right? If this was an ambush and the ships are destroyed. Um, because obviously Kyrdan would be completely unable to f- conceive of what actually happened, right? Um, 
Yeah, I know, Maria. I'm kind of resisting the temptation to have them find Amrod's body, right? Uh, and like, wonder why was there only one elf who was killed, or, or one elf whose body was left? Um, uh, Amrod, who is a burned elf. Uh, yeah, I, I maybe they do. Maybe they find Amrod's body. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I wouldn't think they'd be able to... I wouldn't think that Cairdon would be able to CSI out the fact that it was a Noldor skeleton, would he? Would the Noldor and the Teleri differ so much that you could tell from his charred skeleton that he was Noldoran? I wouldn't think so. Uh, by his armor and weapons... Nah, he left those behind, Tony. Amrod went unarmed onto his ship. He was returning to Valinor, right? He was turning his back on the whole warfare thing. He didn't. He wouldn't have had any armor and weapons with him. Yeah, but also I think that Brianna's right. There's no way that Amros or even Maglor and Mithros would have left without the... Um, would have left the body. I mean, when the, after they heard the screams, they wouldn't just walk off and leave the corpse there. So yeah, no, they would have. They would have. What? Buried him? Or something? Did we decide that? Do they bury folks? Yeah, they do. They, they'd raise a mound. Yeah, they'd raise a mound. So they'd have to find them. They'd have to find the mound. Right? But no, they would do that. There's no way Amros would just walk off and leave his brother's bones on board the ship. There's no way. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, <laughs> everybody is suggesting different ways by which they would discover that they were older. I don't want them to discover it. I don't want them to discover it. I, I, I kind of want to leave this in suspense. I want there to be a moment of horrible realization later on when Kierden puts together what the what those burned ships actually meant. Um, and I'm willing to delay that. I'm willing to delay that real far. I'm willing to delay that into season four. I'm willing to delay that until the moment that th- he and Thingol are talking about the rumors about the... Remember when Kierden comes to Thingol with the rumors about the kinslaying? I, I'm thinking then... You know, that Kierden is like, wait a second, I heard rumors, and let me tell you, I am now looking at these burned ships in a totally different light. Right? Um, he would find out later. Yeah, yeah he'd he find out later that, that, yeah, so, so yeah, and, and I, I, I don't want him to, to have any reason to know what happened. He thinks, so what he do, goes what off. Do, what do you think he thinks happened? He thinks that Olway and some of the other Teleri came over to like to visit them, to visit Kirtan and, 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 and the elves of the Falas, and to reestablish their, you know, this is the fulfillment of their goal, or that's the first step, anyway, of their goal, <clears throat> to establish, you know, the two harbors, one in the east and one in the west, for elves to come to and from uh, Middle-earth. And, uh, but it's so gone what horribly we, wrong. What do we think? What do we think he thinks happened? Does he think that they came across the visit and then got caught by the orcs? Yeah. Ambushed by the orcs and and slaughtered to a man. Yep. Yep. Ah, all right. So so it's not like he's initially filled with hope. No. And 
things like, oh, the Clary are here. And no hope. Can't find the only but hope, the he, only... He, he thinks something horrible happened, and then later on he finds out something even more horrible happened. Exactly. He thinks something horrible happened. Uh, he, maybe they would look. Maybe they would suspect, hey, perhaps, uh, perhaps they got away because we didn't find any corpses, right? But then they might equally be thinking, maybe they ate the corpses. I mean, remember, there were like enormous slavering wolves chased them out of the phallus, right? So um, I would think that they're... they're, um... This would would give Kyrdin like a... um, This would give Kyrdin like... uh, uh, I don't know know exactly what we intend to do with him over the next season, but this would give him something to do. Kierden's mission to find the Teleri survivors. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. Um, Kierden figuring out what's going on can definitely be a, like, subplot of season four. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Um, so, no, the fact that they find no dead Teleri there would just lead them to imagine even more horrible things had happened, essentially. Okay. Um, last point. Finarfin returns to Valinor, also. Um, and the Valar forgive them, but it's a frosty welcome, I agree. They lose the friendship of the Valar and the Teleri. I, no, I don't think we can have them halfway back. I think that... Um, I think that the Valar are either going to forgive them or not let them back. I don't think that the Valar are going to be like, well, we'll let you come back, but we're still just going to hold a grudge forever. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I think that they, the Noldor who return, are going to be covered with shame. Finarfin, of course, being their spokesperson. I think that he's going to be... I think that he's going to return in penitence. Um, He will certainly not become king of the remaining Noldor because he will not accept the... he, he, He will not accept a crown. Um... You know, he is, uh, he would have a humble speech about how, you know, he is not going to sit in his father's seat as king of the Noldor, um, even though he is going to, you know, be the leader of all of the, the, the Noldor who remain. Um, but, What if... Wouldn't he do something? Wouldn't he make some kind of change? What if he... What if we see him... If we see them, the Noldor who return, changing Tyrion? Right? Um, Tyrion, remember, was gorgeous. Covered with gems and... Absolutely resplendent. Right? With glory. I'm thinking... They don't tear Tyrion down, but I think that they... Um, you know, humble it, right? That they, um, they, yeah. Oh, and okay, I agree, Marie. Some of the the Valar are going to be a unified front. <clears throat> Some of the Valar can be more grudging than others. Aule is going to be the most grudging. He's going to be the most the most injured and therefore the slowest to forgive of all of the Valar. I do think that their relationship has changed. I don't think that they are the favorite of Aule anymore. Um, and um, yeah, I would like to see them doing something symbolic to Tyrion. 
uh, to sort of show because Tyrion is going to. I mean, the visual appearance of uh, the visual appearance of Tyrion would be like representative of the pride of the Noldor, and I would want Finarfin to to make an active step to humble that. Right? He's going to forswear. Uh, he's going to forswear arms. This will be important later, <laughs> right? Because we're going to have the uh, we're going to we're going to we're, we're going to have the War of Wrath, but not for some time. He would forswear arms, I think, arms and armor, uh, and they would. Uh, yeah, exactly, Tony. I'm thinking of that too. Tearing down all the jewels and offering them as some kind of wear guild to the Teleri. Um, I, I I I would think we would have to show that. I would think that we would have to show Finarfin. Um, Remember, Finarfin's wife is there, right? Finarfin's father-in-law was killed. So we have to show Finarfin returning to Alqualonde. Um, and, so, um, yeah. Are you, are you proposing that the, the Valar do something to Tyrion? Or, no, uh, the Noldor themselves. The, the, okay, yeah, I like that idea. Act of I repentance. Like the idea, I don't know... I'm curious to know what you think of this. Kind of like the idea that the... I think that I'm sort of inclined along the lines of the Valar forgive them. Because mm-hmm. um, it, it just seems like what they would do. Yeah. Uh, but I I kind of like the idea of the Valar sort of saying... Of the Valar proposing to Finarfin or convincing him to take o- to, to assume leadership, to be, to, to take the... the you know, to become the leader. Yeah. But then kind of laying it on him to make things right. Yes. You know, basically telling them, telling him, you need to be king now, but just so you know that we're not giving you an honor. This is a, this is a really crappy job. Actually. <laughs> right. This right. Is like by, by becoming king, being king is part of your penance. Yes. You now are responsible for, for, um, Oh, for I like that. Your people are, restitution yeah i like that yeah he Finarfin comes in and he's all like i'm not worthy i shall not take up i shall not sit on the throne of my father uh and uh and you know i have i have lost any right i ever could possibly have had to lead my people and uh and manway says yeah, yeah no you will and it, that is part of your it is part of your of your penance that you will you must um yeah i like that i like that i i like that a lot um and yeah, and we've got to show him returning to Aqualande, right? Here now or later, we've got to show him returning to Aqualande. Um, we don't necessarily have to squeeze that into this episode. We could have his meeting with Man- this conversation with Manway be part of this episode, and have Finarfin's return to Aqualande be part of a later episode, like perhaps when uh, have that align with Fingolfin's decision to cross the Helcaraxa, for instance, suggest itself as one possibility. Um, but um, but I do think we need to bring Finarfin back to Alqualanda. We, we need to close that loop. The kinslaying has to be. Uh, I mean, it's not going to be totally solved, right? It's not going to that that loop doesn't get closed until after the War of Wrath. Um, but we need to we need to do something there. I think. Um, okay, good. All right. Well, I'm running out of time rapidly now. Whoops, that was a little too rapid. Hang on a second. Uh, we'll do that again. Um, Okay, so I had one more slide, which was questions for next time. All right, here we go. So first off, uh, we're still off our schedule a little bit. Next week, I'm going to be in Texas for TexMoot, which is going to be awesome. Um, uh, so we, I, we we won't have a session next week. So our, our next session will be on um, 
January 19th. So two weeks from, t- so it will be two weeks from today. Today is off the schedule. Next time is off the schedule. So the plan is to return to the schedule after that. So we're going to have our next session on January the 19th. The following session will be the next week on January the 26th. And then we'll be back to the original posted schedule uh, on GoToWebinar. So, um, so next session, Friday, January 19th session after that, January 26th, one week later. So my questions for next time. Next time we get into battles. Question number one, how does the battle go in the north? How are the Balrogs involved? So we're going to, that is the, the central event of the battle in the north is the Noldor plowing through, you know, the, the Noldor mowing down the, the orcs like grass, right? So how are we going to manage that? Are, are, they, are we going to have Balrogs killed? We are now finally to the point where we have to make a decision on a point which... Uh, is, a non, is, is not a no-brainer, um, how destructible are we going to make Balrogs? So how are the Balrogs going to be involved in the battle? Um, are they not going to be involved in the battle or whatever? How, how, how we, do we want to have Balrogs killed in the battle? Um, is that a thing we want to do, or do we want to have there only be a small number of Balrogs and have them almost never killed? Um, we, that's a decision we need to make next time. Second question, how does the battle go in the south and how are the Ents involved? So we have uh, the battle, the chief element of the battle in the south. So the battle in the south is going to be the orcs coming down uh, on the eastern side, going into Osirian and uh, fighting the green elves. And the chief feature of that of the battle in the south is going to be the uh, the slaughter of the green elves. So uh, the, we're going to have the battle in the north going very very well, and the orcs being no match for the Noldor. And we're going to have the battle in the south going very very badly, and having the green elves be no match for the orcs. But just like we have the question of if the battle's going to go really badly in the north, what are the Balrogs going to be doing? Do we show them losing or, or not? How do we handle that? In the south, we have the Ents, right, who have been traveling with the Green Elves and who are friends with the Green Elves. Treebeard is going to be at that battle. What do the, elves, what do the Ents do? Do they, I mean, if the Green Elves are all being slaughtered, um, how is it that Treebeard and the rest of the Ents allow the Green Elves to be slaughtered? We have to figure that out. So that's the second question. Third, we're going to get to the crossing of the Helcaraxa. So now we need, we need to continue to refine. We've talked about it some today. That second decision, confronted with the actual Helcaraxa and with the knowledge of what it's going to take and the level of sacrifice that's going to be required uh, for them to cross the Helcaraxa, what are they... What are their reasons? So here we're going to need Angrod, but we're going to need others, right? What are the different voices that we're going to get? What are the ultimate reasons that Fingolfin uses? When Fingolfin makes his speech, as I agree with Dave, he needs to do. When Fingolfin makes his speech, we're crossing the Helcaraxa, folks. Come with me. What is going to be his explicit rationale? All right? So those are the questions for next time. Any final thoughts, Dave? Nope. Uh, I'm very, very excited to do the crossing. Yeah, yeah. That's... Also, I'm, I'm pretty excited about the, the – I like I – like, um, I really, really enjoy exploring all these um, these Falothrim storylines in Middle-earth that, you know, don't get a lot of – get a lot of uh, screen time, as it were, in the uh, published Silmarillion. So, Absolutely. So, yeah, I'm excited. And yeah. I'm very sad I won't be in text mood. Yes. Yeah, text mood is going to be awesome. Um, but the but – the, the likelihood of me being at Myth Move Five is steadily climbing. So Excellent. That's a good thing. Very good. That'd be wonderful. Uh, yeah, yes. yeah, it's going to be great. Um, yeah. So, and I and I agree with you. Again, this to me, this is the most. F- 
fun. It's what I keep telling people about the Amazon series, you know, to, to people who say, like, why is Amazon doing it? There's no point. Peter Jackson just did it and it was fine. Um, the, the whole point is that it's a completely different kind of storytelling. It's not just that you don't have to compress the events. It's that you don't have to compress the characters, right? I mean, you think yeah. of the decision that Jackson had to make to replace uh, Glorfindel with Arwen. Um, a lot of people don't like that. I think it's a very sensible choice because Glorfindel is will do nothing for the re- whole rest of the story, right? So why introduce such a minor character when he's only going to have one scene eventually, you know, right? I mean, he's only going to have the one moment. Why not use that as an opportunity to introduce a character who's going to matter? So, I mean, I, I, I get that's the kind of decision you have to make when you're compressing the story in that way. Um, but the beauty of being able to do the longer action, sequential, episodic, uh, epic storytelling is that you don't have to do that. Um, in, in fact, if anything, we can go the other way. So you think of the decisions we've been making about, you know, how do we, um, uh, how do we, uh, the, that list of characters, that list of the grandchildren of Finway. Right. Which confuses so many people. I mean, I've talked to so many people for who's for who's for whom the stumbling block of reading the Silmarillion is just keeping all the names straight. Right. Because in the published Silmarillion, by and large, with only a few exceptions, that list is you just kind of have to memorize it. I mean, even Fingen doesn't do that much. He gets his one moment. Right. Well, two moments if you count his death. Right. Um, but um, he doesn't get that many moments. Even Finrod, even Fingen doesn't get that many moments. Right. Uh, Finrod does the whole, you know, most of the rest of the sons of Fanor um, don't get that many moments. It's just it's 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 hard and it's really difficult. And there's so many characters who are only names, nothing but names. And in telling stories like this, we get the opportunity, even if only in small ways, like making Angrod the spokesperson for the we need to take vengeance on Fanor faction, we get the opportunity to, 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 to attach a story to what was only a name in the book uh, and really kind of fill this out in a really fun and rewarding way. So, uh, so yeah, I agree. Doing that, thinking about the Philothrim and, you know, as you say, what a, what a, a kind of you know, sort of marginal story that is uh, in the sense that it kind of takes place on the margins of the main story in the Silmarillion. And it is really fun to be able to approach it. So anyhow, I agree. This has been great fun. Very quickly, just to, just to remind everyone, I'm going to put this on Twitter. The next three film films are two weeks from now, Jan 19, then immediately following the following week, Jan 26, right? Yep. Yeah. Then, then, and then we're back on our normal schedule. Then we're back so on our normal schedule. Nine. Yeah. So it'll be exactly. Right. It'll be it'll be All February. Right. What? Yeah. Ninth. That's the date. The. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. two weeks after. Two weeks after the twenty sixth. Yep. Yep. That is correct. Right. Remember that, everybody. All right. Very good. Okay. Well, thanks everybody for joining us. Great suggestions here today. I think we made a lot of a lot of excellent progress. And I will say, as always, thanks for listening and Godspeed.